But it's the same thing. Like overly, you know, in the pet community, you get people who the problem behavior that they're having with their dog is fixed by doing that behavior. Like, in, in a controlled fashion. In a controlled fashion sure. and on command. And you yeah. open the window to the dog and you say, hey, now's the time to display that behavior I hate. Mm-hmm. And for the next five minutes, I'm going to tolerate that. Mm-hmm. And then we close the window and the dog's like, sweet. Like, yeah. As long as you open that for me every day and I get five minutes of that, I'm good. And it's not that much. Like, so my dog's a very high drive dog. Um, Remy's a lot of dog. And he would he would be in an... if. If he, if he got out of my house one day and was walking the streets and ended up in rescue, he'd be medicated mm. like it would be a disaster. He'd be zonked out on someone's couch. It, he would be Dog zannies, yeah. But the truth is, he is that at my – like right now, he's passed out because mm-hmm. this morning I'm teaching him this really new complex behavior. So we spend, you know, five minutes doing that. Then we go and spend 20 minutes doing the things that he already knows. Then I attach a 15-kilo sled to him and we walk 2Ks with that. Mm. And then we just go for a, like, hour-long wander. So by the time he gets home, he's like, I'm done, bro. See you tomorrow. Right? Like, I love that. That's I'm ready awesome. for that same shit tomorrow. Yeah. Right? But for the rest of the day, he's on the couch. Welcome to Life With Your Dog podcast. Our focus is educating dog owners, enthusiasts and dog trainers about ideas on how to train, manage, live and thrive with our dogs. To teach dogs to live in our society while our dogs teach us how to live in the now. I'm your host Panos Anagnostu. And I'm your co-host Luke Badman. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the show. Well, cheers before we start. Yeah, Thanks cheers, for coming boys. in, brother. Thanks, mate. Appreciate, yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thanks for asking. On a weekend, long weekend. Mm. I didn't realize it was a long weekend when I agreed to it, but <laughs> here we are. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that makes no difference. Yeah. yeah, sweet. Likewise. Cool, man. All right. Welcome, Pat. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, man. Very thanks good to have you in the studio. Our first physical guest. Yeah. I've um, the first one to breach these walls, right? Now. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, it's good to have you. Yeah, thanks You've been for. Well? Yeah, I'm all right. Got this sickness I can't get rid of, but it's not Corona. I promise. Been okay. tested. Oh, been tested. Been tested twice. Yeah, overdid it in a workout and haven't recovered. But we've been through that. You're a warrior. <laughs> Once upon a time, yeah, so you'll get through it. Eh? Glenn messaged me and he's like, "You have to call him the Fat Commando." <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't actually. I'm just fucking, yeah. <laughs> it's not my nickname anymore. Yeah, I got okay. to pass it. You on. passed it on. Yeah, yeah I yeah. passed it on. I have no idea whose it is anymore. Yeah, well, that's right. proof that Luke listens to the show. Yeah, actually, there you actually, go. We had um, somebody, she said not to say her name, um, mention that every time Luke mentions your name, she's going to take a shot a and she's going to be game, wasted yeah. after every episode. <laughs> <laughs> have a bit of a man crush going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not to put it too much on Luke, but um, mm. obviously we listen to a lot to the show. Okay, cool. I've listened to every single episode of The Canine Paradigm for listeners. Um Tell us a little bit about the podcast. Tell our listeners if they're not familiar. Uh, yeah, so me and uh, Glenn, who you guys have had on, we do a podcast called The Canon Paradigm. Um, I think we're 130-something episodes in, something like that, uh, over you know about two and a half years or something like that. Uh, it's it's fun. We enjoy doing it. We don't really have a structure. We just rock up together. Neither do we. And, yeah, I think that's the best way. <laughs> Isn't that what the, what's fun about it? Like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we just rock up. And talk dogs sometimes. <laughs> sometimes mm. we talk shit. Do you I'm guys like, take turns setting the topics or? Uh, yeah, like we might brainstorm a little mm. bit beforehand and we try to, we try to mix guests and, um, you know, like theory. Our, yeah. Well, having an interview is a good way to break up just me and him waffling at each other. <laughs> uh, you know, there's some episodes that have hit the editing room floor that have just been oh, really? us just talking <laughs> nonsense to each other. And then we, like, you know, we'll talk it out and it goes for two hours and then he hits stop and I go, about to delete that one. He goes, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work out. But you. but we enjoy it. It's a, you know, it's, it's changed my life, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we've really, uh, it's, you know, Glenn has the stats on it, but we're at, you know, some outrageous number of downloads and we're heard in hundred and something countries. So cool, man. Yeah, he's the stats man. He knows all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't really know it all, but uh, it, it's been great. Uh, it's opened up amazing doors for me. It's really changed my life, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, so, it's just great. That's awesome. Give us a little bit of an origin story. You guys are big on origin stories, so we want to hear a little bit of yours. Yeah. So, uh, for me, like I guess we're talking dogs, right? So, uh, for me, I joined the army pretty much straight out of school, was recruited directly to a special forces unit. As at the time, it was this new thing that was starting. I was on the pilot program called the Direct Recruiting to Special Forces, DRS. Mm. Uh, and it was a, a a trial program to see what was happening was what later became two commando regiment were directed to raise another company. So like, you know, another 80 commandos. It doesn't seem like a tall ask, but considering kind of 10 or 15 get through every selection mm. and reinforcement cycle, 80 is a huge number. Yeah. So, uh, instead of just recruiting from army and defense, they, they decided they were going to recruit from civilians. And I was, <laughs> it kind of was weird. I was giving a friend of mine a lift to recruiting. He was trying to join the <laughs> army and I just kind of ended up in the army. <laughs> oh, so you, you hadn't sort of w- always wanted to join? Or? I kind of had an interest. Yeah. In, uh, like one of my best friends growing up, he joined the army straight out of school. Yeah. And this other guy wanted to, but he was dyslexic. And, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a pretty, it's an interesting indictment on the education system, right? So he, his whole school career had a reader and a writer for his exams. Well, Richard Branson's dyslexic, so yeah. it's not the end of the world. Well, that's right, yeah. right? So, but what happened was in his, all of his exams through high school, he got a reader and a writer. So he's actually a very intelligent guy, mm. but they allowed someone else to assist him with the tests. And uh, when he went to join the army, they're like, no, no reader, no yeah, writer. Right. And so they told him he was a moron. They told him that he's, he's, <laughs> he was so, his gas score, which is like their equivalent of an IQ test, was so low, there was no job in the army mm. that he could have. Wow. But it was just because it's an online test and uh, he just couldn't answer enough of the questions. Mm-hmm. to In the to, time gap. Yeah. yeah. To, so he got, he got all of them right, but he only got did a couple of them, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> and so then in 12 months, he taught himself to read and write and- like in 13 years of private school, never got it done. Yeah, but yeah. then there's a real drive. So anyway, when he was finally redid his test and was going in, uh, he changed his address or something. And I gave him a list of lift to recruiting and I was sitting there waiting for him. And suddenly I was in the army. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that the recruiter's job though? To <laughs> yeah. like, and it's funny. Fishing net everyone that comes in the door. I know so many people who have told me, oh yeah, I'm trying to join the army and I'm jumping through these hurdles and this. And it's like a six month. No, for me, it was like two weeks. Well, like, I didn't I, just I, drive to crazy. the recruiting office. Yeah. I was yeah. there I'm talking to this chick. She's like, yeah, you should do this. And I was like, okay. And well, I was really fat. I was really overweight. And then. So you were like, what, I, 18? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or 19. Yeah. Um, and so then they said, oh, we've got. I did my like psych and aptitude testing and that, and then you go in with the psychs and they say, "Oh, we're starting this program. It's director special forces." And I was like, "Uh, <laughs> see what's going on here, right?" And they're like, "Ah, that's yeah. we can fix that. Don't right. worry about that." Yeah, for real. Um, so you weren't like a particularly sporty kid. Or yeah, I was. Like yeah, were, yeah, it was for sure. But I was like, you know, I was an overweight teenager, sure. p- rugby player. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like rugby, yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. so. I wasn't like yeah, a the structure. Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were like, ah, we can fix your body. It's the mental thing that we're after. So anyway, yeah, I was in the army uh, for 12 years. Um, But in 2011, I uh, fractured my back. Uh, Just a training accident, nothing exciting. Uh, Mm. And I stayed in the army for like four years after that. But it just got to the point where I was really more of a a liability than an asset. Mm. So in 2015, I left and um, 
they've been a dog trainer ever since. I wasn't actually in the dog cell in the army. So two commando where I was didn't get a dog unit until 2012. At that point, I was the sniper platoon sergeant and, uh, I was had this interest in dogs and had since about 2008 when I saw my first military working dog on a deployment and yeah, had- I heard I, saw, I heard that story. So yeah, you're right. going to tell us what, what you actually saw? Uh, well, I just saw a live bite that was, yeah. to this day, it, it's a funny one, right? Because the dog that I saw was another, it was a, a coalition partner dog. Uh, I had no understanding of what I was seeing. So the guy turns out to be one of the best handlers still to this day. And, you know, I've met a lot of handlers mm. since. Uh, the dog is still probably one of the best dogs I've ever seen. They're oh. the best pairings that I think I've still ever mm. seen. And so he just had this easy way of living and managing this dog. And it gave me the totally wrong picture of what that kind of dog was. And he had no idea either because he didn't train the dog. It's someone else trained it. He was a handler, yeah. but a really good one. But, uh, he was the him and the dog were on the same page so intuitively that it just appeared like magic, and I was like, "Oh, that looks easy," you know. Like the, the, I guess the dogs are intuitive like that; they just read your mind. So the handlers and the trainers are generally separate, are they, in the army? Yeah. Or? So you know, not like every army, every police is a little bit different, um, but certainly with his dog and what's you know typical in special forces units is they just buy dogs pretty much ready to start the course. And they have people who are like core dog handlers. So like in the Australian army, we have their military police that are, uh, or their air force people who are like dog handlers and we call them DLOs, dog liaison officers. And their job is to, you know, manage the dogs and the husbandry and all that kind of stuff. Because a shooter, you can imagine a guy in a special forces unit. It's something I kind of, I, I used to get quite upset about and I've totally reconciled now is you look at these guys and you go, you know, why aren't you better at this? You've got a huge budget and, but you just have to understand what a small part of their role that dog is. The dog and, is, yeah. And the actual role is a gunfighter, right? And that's what's going to get them, keep them alive yeah. and bring them home. So that's mm-hmm. where their, their main focus of skill has to be. They have to focus on that. And the dog is just one of so many tools that they have in their tool belt. And any one of those tools if mismanaged, could kill them. Yeah, right. And so it's a lot of things like you can you can look at these guys and think, hey, why aren't you better at problem solving with your dog? Why do you have to have this other guy that does that? And it's like, well, actually, mate, we only, even with our own guns, we have an armorer that does like the sure. deep fix of it. You know, I don't know how to fix a barrel. I don't know how to change a barrel on an M4. Mm. I know how to keep it running in the field, but when something really drastic- So you've got a certain level it, of- Knowledge yeah. of so many things. Exactly. Yeah. So right. uh, the trainer's always ac- like accessible. So well, it depends happens. on where they get the dog. So like in the, you might like normally if they deploy, they'll take a DLO. So that like if a company deploys, and there might be three dogs in the company or whatever. So there's three handlers. There might be an alternate handler, um, but then there'll be one guy who goes, and he never goes on missions or anything like that. He just is making sure that everything's set up for the dogs, and he's available to assist in the training of the dogs. And usually they're your primary decoy, that kind of stuff, right? So anyway, like. Like, like I say, when the unit was being raised at Two Commando, where I was, I begged to be involved in it, but it just wasn't on the cards, right? Like, there was no way I was going to go from the role I was in to off the tools and back into, mm-hmm. like, a you know, a, a private soldier's role. So, I was on the peripheries of it sort of the whole time and was really trying to be involved as much as possible um, and filled a sort of an admin role with the guys. But it was really lucky because what it allowed me to do was get my hands on a lot of dogs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and- the first batch of dogs that came into Australia for that unit were not super and they got kind of washed out pretty quick and, but we still had them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, I kind of took it upon myself to 
do what I could with these dogs. Their fate was sealed. They were either going to be retired if they were deemed suitable or they were going to be put down. And a couple of them, mate, were waiting for the end of financial year to have money to, mm. to put them down. Wow. So their fates were sealed. So it's kind of a bit morbid, but for me, it was a good learning opportunity because there's some of these dogs and really dangerous dogs, some of them, and that's one of the reasons why they were sort of not suitable. Uh, and it was a baptism by fire. It was, I said to the guys in the kennel, hey, can I, you know, can I take this dog on and see what I can do with him? It's got, dog's got a severe gunfire aversion. Um, not great say, for working with commandos. Yeah. Right? So he's yeah. out, right? They don't yeah. want to know him. And I said, can I see if I can fix that? Right, like let's. Would they consider that, or they oh, think yeah, it's yeah. more no, more work like, than it has to? Well, no, it depends. So now they do because you know, like a gunfire aversion depends why it has it, right? So if a dog, a dog can just be genetically like that, mm-hmm. but certainly you can give a dog a gunfire aversion lickety split, mm-hmm. especially like you you doing like a room clearance uh, training and you're throwing a flashbang grenade into there. You're wearing you you know it's in a you're in a room designed to to be able to shoot live rounds it's right it's like it's a bezelina it's like a super hardened steel with a rubber frame in front of it so you're in a room this big and you're wearing like double hearing protection and goggles and a whole lot and you throw a flashbang in there and the dog goes in there with it the whole point of a like a flashbang is to like uh (laughs) so it's no wonder that shit happens to the dog so now the guys are really good actually at managing that and making sure they don't give it to the dogs but also Mm -hmm. knowing actually really well how to fix it so do you think that was just a Approach, like a the fact that it was so early in in those early in the days of of having the oh, dogs without going in the into the, like the yeah, sure. the sorted story, but the dogs arrive like that. Yeah. It was a, it was in transit. Yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, that's another story altogether. But but what it, you know the, the punchline was that I had access to these dogs that um, I could just muck around with, and so I was really lucky in doing that, and really dangerous dogs and and so it was a hobby of mine and then it became kind of a passion and um through that a a guy called sam monchini got brought in he was a military policeman and third generation military working dog handler and you know i still really uh passionately feel that he's probably the best dogman in the country um had you had any um exposure to like theory at that stage uh, theory only my own online and what happened with me is like i'd sort of ended up a really staunch force free trainer Mm. and i had exposed myself to that (laughs) the force free commando yeah well because i just uh and i still feel pretty strongly about this i talk about it all the time is that you know i didn't have a dog when Mm. i first started getting into the idea of dog training i had this dog but he was like old and he was my he was my wife's dog really and I think he was 14 was or something. Collie, right? yeah. yeah. Like a mongrel border collie mix kind of thing. He's a cool dog, Ernie. He was a really cool dog, but he was not up for training. Like for he sure. was deaf and could barely walk. And so I'm this aspiring dog trainer, but with no dog to practice yeah. on. And this was before the dogs had come into the unit. And so uh, I was just going crazy for theory and learning everything I could online. And I just think that if you have no theory, if you only have theory and you have no practical, no hands-on, nothing to actually test theories mm. out – it's really quite natural that you would end up going down that force-free line because you got a group of people that say, hey, there's absolutely no need to use any stress or pressure or compulsion on a dog and you can get amazing results. And then there's another group of people that say, well, you do sometimes have to use some pressure. You do have to sometimes coerce the dog. You, you, you kind of like you do have to use positive punishment at times, right, um, to get those same results. And when there's no evidence of either you're just reading mm. the book or looking online if you go yeah i'm gonna hurt my dog <laughs> right like yeah. you're an asshole for sure and so i was really into this like hardcore force free uh that's why we did an interview with ian dunbar and people were horrified at me like i can't believe you you didn't hold him accountable for all this stuff i was like i was in awe of the guy like i had yeah. i've read every I've, I've watched every video he's done i've read everything he put out 
and he's a huge contributor to the industry, like still mm-hmm. big time. The fact that he's really, uh, you know, force-free to an extent or positive, you know, reinforcement guy, uh, I was totally into it. And then I eventually Ernie died and I, I went and bought this Mally and I was like, oh, fuck, this doesn't work. <laughs> right? um, it was amazing a lot of behavioral issues like disaster of a dog you know i really love that dog but i had no business and you had a bit of issues with the breeder there as well right yeah well not the breeder i I still don't even know his bloodline but the guys i bought him from um i got fleeced basically Mm. Uh, oh so they weren't the breeder sorry well i i don't know who the the people you bought them from yeah yeah. so he was about 14 months old when i got him yeah and um you know, you just Google Malinois Sydney and yeah. the big website comes up and I was mm-hmm. like, okay. Yeah. And I had a bit of an idea in my head of what, a, you know, but the, the world was different then. The information wasn't sure. so readily available. What YouTube and Facebook, 2011. Yeah, right. YouTube and Facebook yeah. weren't uh, what they are in now. In their infancy, yeah. Yeah, and so the information wasn't so easy to get a hold of. So I, um, yeah, got this dog and it was a disaster and he was so dangerous um, and- you know, all the behavior modification stuff that I was trying, it just wasn't getting me anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he was very well trained. The, the truth of that dog is he is better trained in obedience and tricks and that kind of stuff than any other dog I've had since. Mm-hmm. Uh, he healed better than my current dog that I win competitions with, right? Because yeah, right. I cared about it more. He had a better picture of it. Yeah. Uh, but Because you train that or he came with that? No, no. He, I trained it. Yeah. yeah he came with disaster training but okay. uh you know he had the flashy head up ipo style heel that mm-hmm. i thought i was into at the time like now i'm not so into that right mm-hmm. but um but what just, was his issues in particular well so he was he was not uh like i say never find out his actual bloodline uh but he he was very thin nerved mm-hmm. and like most malleys that are thin nerved like he he had enough courage to want to go forward a little bit but not enough to be stable, right? So he was a fear biter, basically, mm-hmm. but a really big, powerful fear biter. And maybe m- most people listen to this don't know what thin nerve means. Yeah, so he was fearful. So, like, yeah. he was a dangerous dog. And, and, like, I didn't want a dog that had had any guard dog type training. I, I wanted a green dog. And by green dog, I mean no training, mm-hmm. right? Because I wanted to, p- to mold learn yeah. to become a trainer on this dog. And that's what I bought, but it's not what I got. Mm-hmm. And so- It's uh, what you were sold. Yeah. yeah, and and the they had done some of what I would say now is like some really uh, old school bite work with him that was really more like bite because you're worried about what will happen to you. Mm-hmm. So when I first tested the dog, when I went and saw him the first time, he was fine. He was pretty casual. But then they just did a little bit and like, you know, it doesn't take much. What I understand now is you only got to flick that switch. Mm-hmm. You only got to turn it on one time and the dog's like, hey, I can solve any problem that I'm uncomfortable with. I can fix that by biting, mm-hmm. right? Or at least looking like I'm going to bite. Mm-hmm. And so that was the issue I had with that dog. And so I-, I could not get around that with the skills that I had. And I, I tried to employ some trainers. I did. I got people out, um, you know, and they were Delta certified people because I was like, you know, they're the people, right? And Delta is, ones. for people who don't know, that's like the force-free edu- um, yeah. education in yeah. Australia, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, worldwide, right? Worldwide, yeah. And so, uh, they didn't have any advice that I wasn't already doing. Like, I'd read all their material, mm. right? I was doing all that stuff. And so, it wasn't until I kind of had to reconcile I said to my wife, I remember sitting on the couch one day looking at her and going like, I think this force-free thing might be bullshit. 
And she, and she was like, oh, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> You've come around. Right? Like you're on you're with everybody else now. Mm. And it didn't take long at all. You just need to be told like, hey, you can't do that. Right. And he was, like I say, it's not like he But you pursued use- it though. You, you, you didn't just go, hey, I'm frustrated. I'm going to try and pop the dog. You were like committing to it. Yeah, because like I, re- I really truly believed the rhetoric that I'd read. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I really believed it. And I was yeah. like, you know, this is the way. And, and it didn't uh, like- I was looking at it then from a real, like, you know what? I actually believe now, because a dog, you can sort of inflate things in your mind, right? Like, if I had access to that dog again right now, I probably could get a lot further using purely positive techniques, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would, I wouldn't bother because I don't like to hamstring myself like that. Mm -hmm. But if I had a client and they said to me, hey, this is the dog, these are the issues, or, you know, I assess the issues and they said, we want to stay purely force free, I probably could pull that off now, like knowing what I know now. But anyway, uh, that's how I kind of linked up with Sam and was like, I sought him out and he was coming into the unit and I was like, help. And it, it was like a no, it was super easy to fix. And Sam's actually Belgian, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he's born in Belgium. His dad was a, you know, a Belgian kennel master. And so, you know, there's, like I said, there's no one in the country, there's no one in the country that knows that is better with dogs than him. Uh, and so I started, you know, basically milking him for everything I could get. And we did a video series together on like a pet based one on how to raise a puppy. We yep. got my little Springer Valerie and uh, filmed that. And I still got her, and, you know, still really proud of that. It's not how I would train a dog now. Uh, Cause both of us have kind of, you know, progressed a lot since mm. then. Uh, but as a tool for the average pet dog owner, I'm still really supportive of it. I think it's perfect yeah, for good. that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got into and dogs. And that's uh, mskennels.com, right? Yeah, mskennels.com. Yeah. 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 So that's still there. You can buy that. It's 99 bucks for you know, 25 videos and it's a walkthrough, talkthrough. I, I feel really strongly about like when I was researching dogs, uh, you know, you can pick the bullshit videos and when they say like, this is how we're going to teach a dog to sit and the, the dog, dog knows, knows it, it. Yeah. and they're going through the steps as though they're teaching the dog. Mm-hmm. So when, when we said, okay, we, we're going to film this thing for the average pet person on how to train a dog, we just bought a random Springer mm-hmm. like Alex Hill who, you know, was a very good breeder and we researched breeding, but we also taught that on the course, like how to make sure you're not buying from some random Jono who's a puppy farmer. Yep. Jono. Oh, Jono. <laughs> uh, so she's well-bred dog, but I'd never had a Springer before, mm-hmm. you know, like, so it was really, we're trying to- You weren't like, I want a Springer. Was yeah. Like, we were going to replicate what would- What the be. average person yeah. would happen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, so like, and we wanted a high to document the, the whole thing, yeah, from eight yeah, weeks, right? Exactly. Yeah. So from the day we picked her up, well, actually from when we went and checked her out at four weeks- well, not her, just the litter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, we filmed the whole thing. We picked her up on, she was born the 4th of January and we'll finish filming by about October. We had mm-hmm. everything that a person would ever want to do with a dog and edit it all together and release that. Uh, so that's been out for, yeah, like nearly six years now. Um, yeah, so really that was how me and Sam spent a lot of time together. And in the meantime, we're training other dogs and that sort of thing. And, you know, I owe him a massive debt of gratitude for all the knowledge that he passed on to me. I don't really see Sam too much anymore. He's moved and he got out of the army and we just kind of um, went different ways in what we're training and that sort of thing. Um, has he been on your podcast? Uh, he hasn't, no. No, right. no, he hasn't. Okay. No. He sort of stays out of it. Sam's pretty uh, – like he does his own thing. He yeah, cool. He tends not to uh, – I think he even deleted his Facebook. So, like he's just sort of does his own thing. Yeah, he doesn't cool. want to get involved yeah, cool. in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be understandable at times too, right? Yeah, yeah. It's I a think, bit heavy. You know, like when you're as good as him, people <sighs> – like try and steal your time. Yeah. You know? Does he does he need a he probably doesn't need a Facebook. It's nah, not not, nah, not, not, not a net positive for him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of my backstory. The that's the long version on how I got into it. And that's you know, awesome. I think what you're saying before that that 
that dog, that first military working dog, it was the first live bite I'd ever seen, and it's still probably the most horrific <laughs> bite I've ever seen. I remember just saying to the guy, like- It was more than just a bite, eh? Oh, it was, yeah. it was something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, don't worry, the guy was a bad guy. Like, it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all yeah, legit. Yeah. Uh, and I just was like, what do you call this dog again? He's like, it's uh, Malinois. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, Malinois. And I was Malinois, like- Malinois, yeah. I'm buying one of these when I get home. <laughs> Yeah, it's baptism by fire ever since. But, you know, that was a lot of dogs ago. I've been through a lot of dogs since then. And well, I guess it's a good topic to think about when you got the that your first Mally, him being 14 months old, if you had him at a puppy, would that have been different? Yeah, for sure. Critical I mean, he'd period. be a different dog. Yeah, yeah for sure. Like, like, again, I don't actually know his bloodline. I never bothered trying to figure that out. I, I thought about it for a little while and then I thought, you, you've got the dog. What difference does it make? Right? For sure. Well, like and a lot I, of a lot of um, you know, pet owners would get the dog from the rescue or whatever with already pre-conditioned um, behaviors yeah. or you know circumstances, and not knowing what they're what they're getting themselves into. Exactly, you know? and and it really was for when I went on to do a fair amount of pet dog training. It it really was a lot like getting a dog from a rescue, even mm-hmm. though I paid a lot of money for the dog, because yeah. uh, he he was really drastically undersocialized, um, knew what he knew, and and not much else. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, w- if I'd had him from puppy, would he be different? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally you different. You had him during the, the critical yeah. period, yeah. But as I say, as far as Malum, I go, like, I know a little bit about him now. Uh, he probably would have been what I would describe as a fairly nervy dog anyway, mm-hmm. but he might have expressed that nerve differently. Like so, there's just nervy Malinois. That's a thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. So, like, the- <laughs> regardless of training. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and depends on where you are in the world, will depend on, like, it's more people. There's a, you know, there's often the these big arguments about like what's the difference between a Malinois and a Dutch Shepherd. Have you ever seen a Dutchie? So no. it, it's a it's a Malinois with stripes. It's yep. a brindle Malinois, okay, yep. right? And people will say, ah, oh, you know, a Malinois is this and a Dutch Shepherd is this. Well, they're basically really they're the same dog. You yep. can get Dutch Shepherds from Malinois parents. There's more difference between Malinois bloodlines than there is between yeah. the, those two breeds. Okay. They are recognized mm-hmm. So, you could have breeds. two Malinois that are more different than a Malin, a Mal and a Dutch Shepherd. Exactly, yeah. right? And so, depending on where you are and the dogs that have been used, uh, you know, there's big issues in sport dogs. There's a lot of money in starting dogs and, and there's a lot of lies around uh, – what a dog really is. Mm. And there's all these stories that get, you know, thrown around like, ah, oh, this dog from whenever was X, Y, and Z. And no one can test him anymore and all there is is old footage and they're where he's on the field and, of course, mm. he looks powerful. Do you think social media has a bit to answer for all that A as little well? bit, yeah. yeah. But this has been happening since mm. before then. Yeah. Um, and at least now social media allows for – uh, a faster dissemination of false information, mm. right, and, and truthful information mm. as well. Whereas before, it was all kind of word of mouth stuff, and you you might like there's a really heavily started dog here in Australia, Malinois, that you know it's hard to find a a, a local dog without that's not pedigree. related to it, yeah. yeah, and like was on the field something spectacular, but in real life was perhaps not right, and so it, it it's a it's a tricky breed to deal in because a lot of you know. What people want from a working dog of any type is drive, right? And one thing that makes a lot of drive look like it's being expressed is nerve. Mm. So, if you make a dog just a little bit uneasy all the time- Nervous energy. Yeah. Yeah. Then that expresses as drive. And so- uh, and you need that. You need a little so bit of So, some people it. can't 
on first looks might not be able to tell the difference, right? Yeah, well, yeah. most people can't, yeah. right? Most yeah. people can't. And even some really well-educated, it took me a long time to really come around to understand that, right? And and getting the amount of nerve into a Malinois or a working dog of any type is, that's, uh, it's mixing a little cake, right? And you, you're hoping that genetics <laughs> part, plays a role. Uh, part science. Well, and, and genetics is a dice roll. Mm. You never know. You can make some really good assumptions and you can uh, look back through pedigrees and you can see trends. But at the end of the day, Mother Nature plays the game that mm. she does. I think I've heard you say that on one of your episodes as well. Like one of the good things, one of the really good things about rescue is that if you end up with a dog outside the critical period that's a stable dog, like it's that that's it. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas you could get a puppy from two Oh, they, they look all right, parents, but you end up with a yeah, you crazy just never dog. Know what's yeah, what's going to be there, right? And that's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, research people can do on genetics and how it works. Mm. And you could have two parents that look amazing, but are, ca- are carrying recessive genes that you do not want. Mm. And then they express that in their puppy. So you just don't know mm. what you're always going to get. And that's why, you know, when I'm typically, when I'm, it's tricky in Australia because we've only had Mallies here for 20 odd years, right? Um, but when people, when you're looking for a, okay, I'm going to buy a puppy and I want to increase the odds of getting a really good one is you look at the older bloodlines because the more, you know, people outside the dogs, the working dog world, they would say, oh, you're inbreeding and you're line, you know, over line breeding, that sort of stuff. But what you're really doing is reducing genetic variability. And so the less genes yeah. go into it, the less the less possible outcomes sure. there can mm. be. And eventually, you like you get to look at the really old kennels in Europe, you're pretty close to cloning dogs, yeah. right? And they're breeding very tightly together. In some cases, even brother-sister matings, but it's because like we've had these two, these genes, we know these dogs only have the good ones. Is that going to be a thing one day, you think, actually cloning dogs? Well, it is, yeah, yeah but it doesn't work. No. They've done it plenty of times, but the problem is that like you- it's, you know, what's more important adding to the personality of a dog, right? It's the genetics or the environment. Nature or nurture. Well, it's Both. like saying, you know, what's more important, the area of a, a rectangle, the length or the or the mm. width, right? They're both as important. Yeah, sure. Proportionate. And, you need them both. Yeah. And One so these, won't exist without the other. Yeah. So, you know, there's uh, I haven't seen any personally, but there's plenty of video of like clone dogs. The Russians cloned a couple of Mallies, three of them, and they were nervy because- that would be a critical period issue. They've literally grown in a lab, probably yeah. with a beagle surrogate, and a beagle is not necessarily a great mother for a Malinois, mm. you know what I mean? And okay. so there's a lot of – you're just introducing so many variables. Yeah, so if, if they could clone – you know, if and when they can clone to an adult state, for sure, do that. Yeah, right? Right. Like, and now let's get rid of all the, the problems of, like, uh-huh. how's this guy going to turn out? If we can look at this dog at 18 months old and say – Let's reproduce that and we can push a button and create another 18-month-old dog. Mm. Great. I'm down. Yeah. If we can give the the clone the the same life experiences as the other dog and yeah, turn okay. him into that. But, you know, that's oh, that's science fiction science at fiction. this point. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, the training that you do now, what do you specifically focus on? How do you help? Yeah. So, for me now, I'm kind of lucky. I've really been able to steer my clientele uh, usually either other dog trainers or, you know, pet dog training enthusiasts. So, uh, it kind of was breaking my heart a little bit having to deal in what I was calling like obligate dog training, Mm -hmm. right? When people have a problem with their dog and they just want it fixed because, not because they care about solving the dog's issue, Mm. but because the dog's had a negative impact on their life, right? Um, You think those people just want a flat dog kind of thing? Yeah, Yeah. a lot of the time. Um, And and not through any malice or, you know, it's just that's, that's what- a good the average to them. Pet owner, right? yeah. 
and really it came down to me like I had a dog die and I was doing a lot of pet dog work and it was actually that first Mally and when he died I, I was kind of like really heartbroken over it and I was looking at all these people that had these great dogs that just were really underappreciating them and I, I just I wasn't enjoying it and mm. so um you know, I'm lucky I was able to steer my career in the way of like most of my clients now are, you know, at the minimum dog training enthusiasts. They're mm. really in it for the dog, if not already, you know, some of them really in it for themselves, but in order to compete with their dog, right? Which is fine by me. For as dog well. sports, sports yeah. 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 And so that's kind of what I'm doing mostly now is training other dog trainers in the particular style of dog training that I like to do. Um, and I've been mentored and taught how to do that by, you know, arguably, arguably some of the best in the world. Uh, and, you know, I'm passing that on to people. And, and you know, what I love doing is I'm pretty good with dogs, but I'm much better with training people. That's your much, passion? Yeah. yeah. And so I really enjoy doing that. Um, you know, like I, you know, I compete with my own dog and we do pretty well, but I'm a Actually, I'm a better coach of other people mm. than I am a competitor with myself. And I really, I, I will always compete and I love doing it. And I think that's important that someone like me keep proving that I do know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But my real passion is in coaching other people mm -hmm. and, and sort of getting people who are already pretty good and making them really good. Yeah. Right? Spreading that knowledge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they're a little bit more into it. You said they're enthusiastic yeah. about the dog trainers themselves or they want yeah. to compete their dog in, in, you know, so you do PSA yeah, with yep. your dogs. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about PSA and, and what does that mean at, at taking in mind that we're talking to someone who doesn't know anything that yeah. dog sport even exists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, PSA stands for Protection Sports Association uh, and it's a, an American sport uh, and it's a it's a bite sport. So the idea is it's kind of like a, a civilian uh, testing and trial ground that is a surrogate of a police or military activity. Now, these types of games have been around since the 1800s, and they're basically since then is where police and military use as their their breeding pool and their training ground, right? And so people like me who are not in the police or military develop a very high skill set in the training of a dog to do something that, you know, is not actually that realistic. It's not in intent it's not intended to be a replication of a real life mm -hmm. scenario. It's kind of a stylized version of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, to prove that, hey, I can control my dog and I can get my dog to do all these sorts of things in what would probably be much harder than a real world scenario, mm -hmm. right? And from that, we can, it, it, and it's contrived, but hopefully the dog doesn't know that, right? So everybody's safe, nobody's going to get hurt. But from that, we can assess the dog's courage and temperament as well as trainability. And we can, as civilians, compete to try and, you know, for the fun of it. And we can win trophies and ribbons and there's no prize money in this kind of stuff. It's just sort of bragging rights. But from that, how you would make money out of it is like me being a coach of other people that do that or your dog is considered something special in it. And you might, if you're in the early phases of these sports, you might actually sell your dog. Some of these sports like KMPV in, in Holland, for example, is designed as, it's just one test where you could do a pH two. So they call it the pH one, right? The, the police hound one. You, there is a pH two, but not too many people do it. And the idea is you just do that test one time. It's a certification and then that's it. Like it's over. Mm. The dog does that when he's about two years old and most people then will sell the dog. The way it was actually designed in the past was, uh, you know, in the 1800s when it was designed was when you do this test, your dog is then owned by the Dutch royal family. You keep him. He's yeah, yours. Right. He lives with you, but they own him. And 
what would happen in times of war, and they've done this, is they can then recall your dog. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what's happened all around the world in like World War One and Two. They would take people's horses, right? And you'd be required, like, hey, we need your horse for the cavalry. Yeah. Well, we need your dog because there's a war and we need military working dogs. Mm. But we know the standard that your dog is now trained to because yeah. he's passed our test. Uh-huh. And so also That's to cool. be a police dog in, in Holland, the dog has to have done the PH1. It stands for police out one. So it was very clever what the Dutch did and kind of it's what's happening around the world, but not as formal as what they organized is that you give these people a hobby, right? You give them, you know, it's a way for you to stay social, uh, training a sport dog like that or a, a working dog and a, a dog that bites, it requires more than you, right? Because mm-hmm. you need someone mm-hmm. for him to bite. So you need, <laughs> you need uh, a club. A willing participant. Yeah, and yeah. you need people to help you, right? So it's it more cultural a- there too, right? Yeah, that's right. Because that's where totally. all the dogs came from, exactly. those parts of the world. So all throughout Europe, there's all different sports and all like that are reasonably similar in one way or another, mm-hmm. right? But uh, And they all, you know, there's French ring and there's Belgian ring and there's Cambo, which is Dutch. And uh, the idea was that the the group get together, you know, a few times a week. We train our dogs together. We drink beers. We have we're a social community, mm. but it's also a little side hustle as well because now we train these dogs. We're doing the work of the police. Why the police no longer have to try and breed their oh, own dogs, okay. train their own dogs. Yeah. They've outsourced that to civilians. I spend two years training this dog. Uh, I I do well with him. I sell him for, you know, five or 6,000 euro and I start again. And so mm-hmm. he mm. goes on to become a police dog yeah. and the police put him into service and I start over. So that still happens a little bit, right? Not so much because most people now that are – like in Holland, that still happens. Uh, but most people around the world, they like their dogs. Right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and get the, attached to it. Yeah. Well, and the game – so like PSA that I do, level three – so there's level one, two, and three – by the time you get to level three, there's only like 22 dogs on the planet that have ever made it all the way through. Mm-hmm. And by that stage, the dog's probably like four. I think a dog that's three has done it. Um, but he might be six, seven years old. He's not going into service. Mm-hmm. And the amount of time, energy, effort you put into that yeah. dog, yeah. no one's selling it. No one's selling a PSA three dog. That yep. ain't happening. I don't yep. believe anybody's – I don't think anybody's ever done it. Because you wouldn't put that much work into a dog and then sell it, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's – by that stage, he's, he's so programmed that maybe – he would make a really niche working dog, right? Like, because mm. he's so heavily controlled. Most of them would work really well, but for their handler, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of the level three dogs are then stud dogs. So then it's like, okay, like we know he's got the goods and we put him to a bitch that, uh, you know, who also competes or that has, you know, is a relation to another stud dog that is a well competitor. So we know the bloodline is good and we breed, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the idea of these bite sports. Uh, as people can look at it and go, oh, why would you teach a dog to do that? It's a game. Um, some dogs are really serious in the game and don't understand the game. Some dogs are doofit. Like my own dog is really – my dog's – my current Malinois, Remy, is the most social dog I've ever owned, met, lived with, had anything to do with in my life, right? Mm-hmm. Like that dog loves everybody and everything he's ever met. Now, he'll fucking bite shit and he'll, <laughs> he'll wreck shit, but there's no malice involved in it, right? Yeah, so yeah. he's a really – It's a game for him. Yeah, yeah, totally. And he's a really uh, – a game he loves and a game he's good at. Mm. But he's a really good example of a dog that just plays like that. But I won't lie and say all dogs like that. Some of For the sure. dogs in these sports are killers and they want – Would you say it'd be like a, a, a human doing martial arts and totally. that can develop them to be awesome or people can then misuse that? Totally, or of course. whatever, so – Of course, right? For so, sure. it, can go, it can go both ways. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the idea of these sports is that we then uh, – it's a – it's a proofing ground for training techniques and for bloodlines of dogs and that sort of stuff. And, and uh, you know, people less in Australia, would they title a dog and then sell it to the police? Because, you know, that's typically not how it goes. But 
a title dog will then his progeny are worth more and are considered more likely to be you know usable by the it's police like horses or right it's yeah. exactly the same it's just yeah. it we're exactly like horses but so they win races budget. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, there's less money yeah. much much less yeah. money in dogs because you can't gamble on dogs yeah that's, that's right. why yeah in that way yeah for yeah sure. and it's uh it's it's like the the house version of, of horse racing. <laughs> yeah, right. But would you say that, like, I'm all about giving dogs a job and when we mm-hmm. talk about going to a client and the dog's barking, reactive, doing all the things that are problems, mm-hmm. fulfilling their own instinctive needs that don't align with our values. Yeah. So, we, I'm all about, well, we've got to give the dog a job. Obedience training is like a regular thing that we do and loose lead structured walking is that dog's fulfillment, mm-hmm. mind and body. And doing something like dog sport is like one of the ultimate fulfillments for a working dog of like a Malinois German shepherd. Yeah, totally. Like so, that. like, that's what they're bred to do. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if we if you have your Labrador and he's tearing up the house, he's unlikely to be successful as a competitor in a bite sport. Right? Sure. Yeah. But uh, those dogs, like a lot of people get Mallies because they see them on TV or they, you know, they like the look of them or whatever. And he needs an outlet. Like, you know, so my own dog, for example, like- I can't leave him at home with my wife for more than sort of 48 hours because he gets too worked up. He has to work. Yeah, yeah. And he can get, you know, he can he can spend a day without work. I can go away for a day or two and he can handle that. But then he would be a problem dog. Like if mm. he was in the wrong home, he'd be destructive. You would look at him and say, he's got separation anxiety or he's just mm-hmm. destructive and all those problem behaviors that- it broke my heart to get called out to people's homes and try and mm-hmm. fix these issues. Because the dog had no outlet. Yeah, and, you'd, like, you'd think to yourself, yeah, like, I know how to fix this, right? Like, I know how to stop the dog doing this. Mm. But the best way, we don't address it at all. I we remember you saying on one of your episodes, you, you I think you encountered a lady in the park and she and the dog, you, she was like, I want the dog uh, to yeah. stop doing this. Yeah. And you were like, well, why don't you go and put it in this sport? Yeah, and yeah. she's like, no, no, no. Yeah. I just want him to stop doing yeah. this. Yeah, and you're like, a- well, he will yeah, well, yeah. if you go and put him in this sport. She's yeah. like, no, I don't want to do sure. that. Yeah, yeah. And that happens all the time, man. And you, you get she that. wants abstinence, yeah. right? Yeah, she Not- just wants the dog to stop. And yeah. it, it can be really counterintuitive to say to people, well, actually- the best way to get him to stop is to do heaps of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. So, like, yeah, he's tearing up your couch, but let him tear this up. Turn that into a- Yeah, yeah give him work. something yeah. to- Like, because he doesn't actually want to destroy your couch. He wants to just fucking tear shit apart yes. with his mouth. Right? Yes, exactly. And, like, he's, we're not going to let him go and do that to a cat, yeah. which is, like, what he's hardwired to do, or to a pig or mm. something like that. Or a rabbit or whatever. So, yeah. yeah, now we need to give him, like, this surrogate. Here's this tug and here's biological game. fulfillment, exactly. right, that you biological. talked about. For sure. And so, um, that's the sort of thing, like, for- a lot of the dogs that are bred to do that, that's it's, it's another kind of heartbreak of the industry is that people buy uh, dogs that are designed to work and they get those dogs in order to do nothing with they them. They buy a lot of mm-hmm. dog and yeah. then they put it in a domestic yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. And it, just because they like the look of the dog or the idea of the dog. I think a lot of the times people sometimes think they're going to get into dog sport and then re- don't understand the commitment. Like mm. it's not a thing you can just do every now and again, yeah. right? Like you really got to be into it because once a dog gets a taste, especially once you flick that switch, right? Mm. Like it's hard to turn that off. So when you go away for your seminars overseas and that Remy has to be somewhere else, right? Yeah, he else, stays right? at Lens, yeah. yeah. So he goes in the kennel yeah. and um, yeah, and he's happy there because yeah. they can fulfill him. They, yeah. they And he's, 
he doesn't get as much work as he does with me, but at least there it's like coiling a spring. And then <laughs> I, I take, <laughs> I'm gone for two weeks. Yeah. I go pick him up and we're straight into work. Like I'll yeah. even, there's times I'll leave him in that kennel for an extra day to make sure that I have access to someone who can catch the bite for me as he comes out of the kennel, right? Mm. So that I can like <laughs> not waste that expression that I've been building. And, and, but you, you would do that not because he, he needs it, but not that, oh, every Malamar has to go and have a sleeve come out when you come out of the kennel. But that's the thing that you're training towards. That's his job. And because yeah. you're into it, you're passionate about it. So you're making him always better towards that. Yeah. So that dog, and one of the reasons why he is so chilled out is because he enjoys conflict and he gets it. And so he doesn't look for it. He knows mm-hmm. it's coming. Yeah. He knows like, hey, we are going to fight right? mm-hmm. at some stage. And it's exactly like there's lots of people that feel this way about exactly like you say, martial arts. They go to their jujitsu gym three days a week and they get to choke their mate. And it's like at the end of it, it's like, hey, we shake hands. Mm-hmm. And I just needed to get that out mm-hmm. of my system. And that can be really difficult for the some primal people. Primal energy. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, people think, oh, you wait. If you make, if you allow him to bite the tug, you know, we all know, we've all heard, yeah, you yeah. know, don't teach a dog to bite the tug because you'll make, make him, him aggressive. aggressive yeah. And and, and I've heard, and we can go into depth about. Well, you can may you may be able to do that, but on as a general, if you're giving him that outlet, he's not going to try to go out there and fulfil it in that way because he's already got it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah? Like at worst, what I will acknowledge on that, like I don't, you know, I don't want to pretend like that's not a thing that can happen. But at worst, you might flick a switch and make a dog go like, oh, it's okay to bite people, mm-hmm. right? That's at worst. Or, you know, you might have- You a mean dog- when he's on a sleeve or on a Yeah, just on a, a sleeve tug. or yeah. even if it is on a tug, you could get to the dog where he could have managed his whole life and lived a shitty life, but never known that that's mm-hmm. what he was missing, okay. right? That yeah. is a possibility. For I don't sure. think that's likely, but that's a possibility. I will acknowledge that. But it's the same thing. Like overly, you know, in the pet community, you get people who the problem behavior that they're having with their dog is- fixed by doing that behavior. Like, in, in a controlled fashion. In a controlled fashion sure. and on command. And you yeah. open the window to the dog and you say, hey, now's the time to display that behavior I hate. Mm-hmm. And for the next five minutes, I'm going to tolerate that. Mm-hmm. And then we close the window and the dog's like, sweet. Like, yeah. As long as you open that for me every day and I get five minutes of that, I'm good. And it's not that much. Like, so my dog's a very high drive dog. Um, Remy's a lot of dog. And he would he would be in an- if. If he if he got out of my house one day and was walking the streets and ended up in rescue, he'd be medicated. Mm. Like it would be a disaster. He'd be zonked out on someone's couch. It, he would be dog zannies. Yeah. But the truth is, he is that at my like right now he's passed out because mm-hmm. this morning I'm teaching him this really new complex behavior. So we spend you know five minutes doing that. Then we go and spend twenty minutes doing the things that he already knows. Then I attach a 15 kilo sled to him and we walk two Ks with that. Mm. And then we just go for a like hour long wander. So by the time he gets home, he's like, I'm done, bro. See you tomorrow. Right? Like, I love that. That's I'm ready awesome. for that same shit tomorrow. Yeah. Right. But for the rest of the day, he's on the couch. And yeah. because this sort of relates to what we we're talking about before, like he doesn't really have any nerve. I haven't seen anything that dog's scared of ever. So guarding the house and that sort of thing, it requires an element of nerve. So, like, he doesn't even get- like, We have to feel threatened, right? Yeah, he doesn't yeah. worry about anything. So, exactly. you could come up, like, you can knock on the head. Oh, yeah, deliveries. He doesn't get off the couch. Yeah. <laughs> he, he'll he just sort of casually look one eye like, who is it? Anyone I know? Mm-hmm. Anyone I like? Right? Yeah. Oh, no, I'll go back to sleep. Because he doesn't, like, it, he's not concerned over that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In his mind, he's so powerful in his mind that he's like- no one can hurt me. Yeah. Like, what? I don't have to guard any of this shit. This is just where I sleep. Like, For who sure. cares, right? I mean, you try and take his Kong, 
you're having Different a whole story. another experience, yeah. right? Because yeah. he's possessive like mm-hmm. that. He enjoys the conflict of you try and take my things and I try and stop you, right? And if it wasn't you and your dog and if it was just, you know, Jono down the road with the same dog, you would try to fix that because you don't want to take away some of that element yeah. that's going to for um that's going to complement the job that he has. Yeah, exactly, yeah? right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of the struggle when you dealing with a lot of pet dog clients is a lot of the times their dogs are just uh underfulfilled. They mm-hmm. they're angry. They mm-hmm. they're lashing out. Mm-hmm. And it can be really as I say, it can be really hard to explain to people like I know you've called me to your home to stop your dog being destructive. But what I want to do is make your dog more destructive, mm-hmm. right? In a it's controlled like, fashion. Yeah, yeah. And let's give him something to destroy. Yeah. Uh, and like that, you know, even that like little things that you can manage with your dog. Like, you know, we eat pizza once a week or something like that. I give my dog the pizza box. Oh, he carries it down to the bin. And then he just <laughs> shreds it. He yeah, goes yeah. mental, just yeah. tears it apart, yeah. right? And then he gets like, oh, I, I destroyed something. Yeah, right? Right? Like yeah, I yeah. feel good Luckily about having it. Right? The video you put up of him, you're walking and yeah, you're like, yeah. yeah, just going for a walk with Remy and he's in the fucking river just swimming along yeah. i'm like well like you know just the other day i was hitting the bag hard and like in if you saw that you'd be like wow man you're crazy or yeah, you're aggressive yeah. but i haven't punched someone in the head for a long time um and yeah, maybe yeah. it's because i've punched the bag hypothetically i'm a pretty cool guy and i don't punch people but my point is is that i and he said we fulfill that so totally. like and um you know you were talking before about thin nerves and then dogs only biting back in the day because they were feeling threatened or they felt that they had to out of defense. Yeah. But now we're harnessing more prey drive. Yeah. Would you and say? So, like, it depends on the dog, right? Mm-hmm. So, every dog has, you know, why would a dog bite? There's a couple of reasons, really only two. He feels like he has to or he wants to. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, when you're training a dog to bite, or if you want a dog to not bite ever again, you have to consider, well, why is he? So, my dog f- f- bites because he likes doing it. It's to him- It's over, fun. Yeah. Over yeah. over his life, he's learned that this- And there's no animosity with him. Like, he can- You can do some really hardcore bite work with him. You can really put the hurts on him. And then I say, it's over. And he's like, yeah, we're done. Like, there's- He knows. We're finished. It's- there's no works over. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no hate to the decoy. It's like the person that's getting bitten. It's over. Like we're finished, right? That that's the the bell has rung, um, and so for him, he wants to. But not all dogs that are you know going to work and that sort of thing are like that. A lot of dogs feel like they, and it's not because they're fearful, but it's like they're more driven defensively, mm-hmm. right? And so you might tap into that. And then within all the bite sports, and especially in the real world, you have to then teach a dog to drive channel, and that's to change their state of mind on the fly, right, and understand when they're winning. That's one of the biggest issues that I face uh, dealing with people who, you know, are maybe not as educated or good at it as we might like them to be, is showing a dog what it looks like to win, Mm -hmm. right? And so the dog never understands, like, you know, I can stop because if the dog is – if you want to get rid of the biting, you can show the dog, like, actually, you don't need to do that, right? Like, there's an alternate behavior you can stop. And if you want to keep the biting but keep the dog in a clear state of mind, you have to show him, like, you've done well. You've won, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you've 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 gotten rid of the threat. If you don't want the dog to ever bite again, maybe say, hey, there is no threat, right? Like, this is not a threat to you and you would approach it from a different angle. But you're tapping into the same part of the dog's brain. That That's, the, that's kind of the idea. And so- why would a dog bite anything he wants to? That would usually be like a prey-driven thing. And he just goes like, hey, I something, everything about me, 100 years of genetic selection tells me I need to bite that. Chase and bite, yeah. All right? And then there's he feels like he has to. And that's because 
I'm concerned, right, over what could happen. But also, like, in a working dog, you have to, even if the dog only wants to work in one, it's best to show them the other, Both. especially if they're a prey dog. You mm. want to try and get them into defense because what the last thing you want is for a dog to go into defensive biting for the first time ever when he's biting someone for real. Mm. That's the worst mm. experience. Like, that's under-preparing a dog. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the issues we have sometimes. Like, there's a lot of – there's a big movement within the force-free community to um, influence the police and military dog world. And people will say, oh, I've trained this this dog um, purely positive for the to work the streets as a police dog. And while the – you know, an exceptionally skilled trainer, I, w- I would agree, would be possible to teach the behaviors that he wants – you cannot adequately prepare a dog to work the streets mm-hmm. using force-free methods because that would be like, you know, you it'd be like you spending your whole life working the heavy bag and never actually sparring someone. Yeah. Back, never yeah. got never even been mm. touched. Yeah. Right? And so you can't adequately There's prepare. No pressure, it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And yeah. um I sent you a couple of videos the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you're you've been studied from Bart Bellin mm-hmm. in the Nepopo system. Mm-hmm. People probably have no idea what the hell I just said there. Give us a little bit of a background, then I want to kind of talk a little bit about yeah, yeah, sure. so, the application in pet dogs. Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, I've been really, really lucky my whole life. And, and How did you get involved with that in the first place, Nipopo? With, with Bart? Yeah. Uh, you know, what happened for me was um, there were some holes in my training. Like, I, I'm, re- I'm very critical of myself mm. and, and my training. I like to review everything that I do and, and be very, very critical. Uh, and what I found was I, when I was getting pretty good at training dogs was that I was really good at getting dogs to do stuff when they wanted to. And I was really good at stopping dogs doing things that I didn't want them to do. And that was fine. But where I was struggling was getting dogs to do stuff that I'd already taught them when they didn't want to do to it, activate. Yeah. Right. And then I um, saw this video of Bart and his dog Thor and like I'd heard of Bart, but hadn't really seen anything. And there's this video of him and his dog Thor's this black Mally that he had. Um, and, uh, it's just amazing. It's yeah, one I've of the it, yeah. yeah it, you watch that video. I, I often describe it. It's it's like getting to watch Michelangelo sculpt the David. <laughs> it's like it, it's 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 magic. And what's interesting, knowing Bart now, is that uh, that was not a setup. Like, okay, this is the video that's going to go online and have uh, <coughs> yeah. a million views. You just turn the camera gonna- on. Yeah. Someone else was filming. It yeah. was they was they were going to film a, a soccer match that night, and they were practicing. They were setting up the camera on the rail, mm-hmm. and he was at the field, and they just filmed. Right. What he was doing. So they didn't even know him. He, no. Yeah. And he like it wasn't like this is this is the video. This is rehearsed. He it's literally a training session. So like yeah, what always happens in training sessions is things go wrong. There's moments, and if you watch that video as many times as I have, uh, there's moments where you'll see he tells the dog to do stuff, the dog doesn't do it, and then he uses pressure and the dog does it. Right? Is he using a collar in that video? Yeah, he uses yeah. an electric collar, right? Uh, and he will then stim the dog with the electrics, and then the dog happily does what he was told to do but didn't do the first time around. And you know, I you know was pretty familiar with electrics. We use them in the army. And for me, it was that's how you can stop a dog to do stuff. But he makes the dog start doing stuff spectacularly. Mm-hmm. The dog doesn't dip in drive. The dog doesn't act upset. He just goes, oh, yeah, okay, I have to do that. Got it. All right. Mm-hmm. And does it as powerfully and as uh, excited as he would have if he had chosen to do it the first time mm-hmm. around anyway. So I watched that video. You know, if it's got a million views on YouTube, I'm 100,000. Right? <laughs> and uh, I, I was awestruck. And so through Sam and uh, – 
we, we I didn't know Bart spoke English, and so <laughs> Sam speaks French, and we knew Bart did as well. Turns out he speaks like five languages, and mm. uh, as do like a lot of Europeans. Yeah, we're like, wow, you speak so many languages. And they're like, yeah, yeah I grew you? up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's yeah. wrong with you? Uh, so anyway, he came out to Australia and did a seminar, um, and we organised that, and then I've been kind of studying under him ever since. Um, and so his system is nipopo, and it's negative, positive, positive, and that is, uh, I mean, the truth of it is, is just. In dog training these days, people want to sort of take camps, and it, it's true that the Nipopo is a camp, but it's a camp that includes everything. Yeah. So we don't exclude anything. We use punishment. We use negative reinforcement. We use positive reinforcement. We we use everything that there is. And what happens a lot of the time in uh, dog training is, you know, especially in the pet dog world, you get people who say like, "I am a positive reinforcement only trainer." Well, mm. I'm sorry, that doesn't that doesn't exist. Doesn't exist yeah. And you see the people who say, "Well, you know, I I'm a negative reinforcement guy, a lot of compulsions." Like, yeah, but that doesn't exist either, mm-hmm. right? So you're constantly working within what we say like our operant framework, operant conditioning. You're never in one of these quadrants. It's moving around all the time. It's dynamic, yeah. And so in Nipopo, what we do is we acknowledge that. And we do it on purpose, right? And we're using uh, the full spectrum of motivation, right? Uh, and so the idea is that we layer some pressure into it. We use negative reinforcement where we, we sort of want to compel the dog a little bit, but then we also pay like crazy when the dog ultimately does the behavior. And you're using um, negative reinforcement in the teaching phase, right? Yeah. In the well, early in, phase. In the early phase. And so we might completely train a dog. Like personally, my favorite dog to get my hands on is a dog that has been trained purely positive, mm. knows a bunch of stuff, but is unreliable in doing them. Mm-hmm. And then I can make him reliable and powerful in three weeks, right? Like I can really implement the power and the, hey, you have to do it. And the dog be excited at the idea of having to do it. So that's the idea is that it's, it's, we, we acknowledge that you, you never one thing. You're all, you're everything at once. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like, uh, operant conditioning is to me, I don't want to get too sort of ethereal with you, <laughs> but it's a little bit like quantum physics in that, it's everywhere and nowhere at once. Mm-hmm. And when you observe it, that's where it is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. But it's actually everywhere all the time. Yeah. And that's what's happening in a dog's mind in 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 regards to his motivation, right? Can I give an example? Let's say if I was um, – let's say we're doing this in the morning and I was super psyched to get here, mm-hmm. but it was the first thing I did. I'm sleeping. Normally the alarm – like let's just say the alarm clock's whatever. But let's say the alarm clock woke me up, but it sucks because I'm waking up. But it, it didn't suck that much that day because I knew that I'd wake up – the the pressure was on me. I got up, did mm-hmm. the behavior, and then got here, which was the reinforcement of doing the interview. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the alarm clock in that particular situation was actually good because it got me yeah. to do that? Would, yeah, look, that Could works. that be an example that yeah, just yeah, came that out works. of nowhere? Yeah, that <laughs> works. Look, you know, the, the way I find best to describe it to sort of the layman is that uh, you – when you're teaching a dog a behavior, you want them going towards a payment for having gotten that behavior, mm-hmm. right? And that's great. That works. But what I also do is have them going away from something. So that thing that they're getting away from is always there, but they're really going towards a thing that they want. So you mm-hmm. imagine you're being chased by a bear, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And you're running at the million dollars. And if one day you go like, ah. Can't be bothered going after that million dollars. The bear, still the bear will catch you. Yeah. Right? So you're you're doubly motivated. Yeah. And the idea is that the bear never catches you, but mm-hmm. it's always lingering there in the background. Mm-hmm. You're always actually motivated, and you keep whatever you're paying the dog with. You keep that at a high enough level where the dog is always like, "That's what I want," right? But then when the dog goes, you know what? Today is not the day. 
And you go, well, now the bear's going to get you. So you have to. (laughs) And it's so you're motivated in a push and pull. Like that's actually how I'm rebranding myself Mm -hmm. at the moment is it's push and pull of motivation. It's never Mm -hmm. one. It's Mm -hmm. both at all times. And the problem is what we have in like the dog training world, especially as balanced dog trainers, is people teach everything using positive reinforcement. But then when it goes wrong, they go, okay, I'm a, you know, I'm a reasonable person. I'm going to give a correction. Now, however they give that correction might be a prong collar or a slip leap, whatever, right? And they've taught the dog sit down, stand, and then they tell the dog to to stand from the sit, and he doesn't do it. And they go, okay, like I know you know this, I know you know that behavior, I know that you're just deciding not to do it, right? And in that moment, they go like, here's the correction, here's the pop on the collar or whatever. But that doesn't make the dog do it because that's never to him been a signal of mm-hmm. doing things. Yeah. That's a signal of stopping to things. Stop it. So the dog's like, whoa, what? And this is where there's an argument that comes of like the purely positive people that would say like, hey, you fucked up that dog. Like you just, you, you asked him to do something, he didn't do it. You gave him what you thought was a correction. You physically corrected the dog and it still didn't happen. All you've done is shut the dog down. And that happens because you haven't prepared the dog to, to understand that pressure. that pressure is a compelling action. Like mm-hmm. do the thing that I've told you to do. So what we do is uh, no matter how we've, whether the dog already knows the behaviors and has been taught purely positive or whether he has known the behaviors and been compelled, we just realign those ratios. And so we bring in both, right? And what I want the dog to always understand is that, yeah, there's a little bit of pressure that will push you into the behavior, but there's a bigger paycheck. That's the real reason I want mm-hmm. you going. And if for some reason you get stalled and you don't go after the paycheck, that small amount of pressure will still get you, right? Like mm-hmm. you will have to complete the behavior, but I will still pay you also. So right? not using pressure only as a stop, but also as a go. As a go, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like with dogs, they're very tactile learners, right? So they will – what they – the feedback that they get physically is very important to them. Right. And so we kind of leave that out a little bit. We're using hand signals and voice commands and that sort of stuff. And voice commands to a dog. That's for humans. That's right. Right. So, Mm. like, voice commands to a dog is they have to learn it. Doesn't they don't, no dog comes understanding what any word means. They have to learn that. Um, and you're, you're literally relying on conditioned effects yeah. right there, right? Dogs are hardwired to read your body language, but some of the things like what they're hardwired to lead is like gestures, like go that way mm-hmm. or you're welcome or you're not. And what we've created now is this really difficult world for a dog to navigate, right? Where we need that extra input, right? Because the, 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 the modern society has so many rules for a dog that we don't have the language to communicate with them and we don't have the, the gestures. We don't, we, you know, dogs didn't evolve to learn a gesture of like stop at the corner of the road, mm-hmm. right? Because it wasn't, that's not an issue until recently. It's not instinctive, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so the physical feedback that a dog will get is really important to him. And like, we should never leave that out. We've got to keep that involved in the training so that if your voice doesn't work and if your body language gestures don't work, you can actually touch the dog in one way, shape or another and physically like give him a tactile cue that he has learned to mean what you want it to mean. And, you know, like the tactile cues that you give your dog, the feelings that he gets when you touch him in a certain way or whatever, you have to teach him that, mm-hmm. right? You have to show him like, hey, this means do a thing. And more often than not, the if if you're dealing in like when you're using pressure on a dog or that tactile feedback, what's instinctive to us is to use that to stop, mm-hmm. right? And so you then have to teach yourself and the dog, no, this means go, right? Mm-hmm. Like this means do a particular thing. And in this context, it means do this. And, and you know, like – the truth is, this is the leash, right? Like, this is, there's no yeah. magic to this. People yeah. are doing this with their leash yeah. all the time, right? Mm. Well, that's the, the thing is, you're saying, like, 
the people say, I'm force free. It's like, well, you've got the dog on a leash. That's right. That's pressure. Right. That's exactly Dogs it. don't, dogs weren't, dogs didn't have leashes on until humans leashed them. Exactly. Yeah. And how can it be accidentally used? If you've used, and you've said this before, is when you're walking, the dog wants to get to the, the tree to pee on it. He will put the pressure on, which is always undesirable. But in here he goes, well, that pressure's on. I get to it. It goes away and I get the smell. Exactly. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. That's totally it. And so For that's sure. how a lot of Nepo used mostly by pet people by accident <laughs> to undesirable behaviors. Yeah, and doing really good. Yeah. For oh, sure. Beautifully. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people say, you know, what we deal with a lot is people say, oh, my dog pulls to the park, right? But he doesn't pull home. And they say, oh, it's because he's tired and he doesn't, he doesn't. I say, no, he's no longer motivated to mm-hmm. pull because what you've conditioned your dog to understand is that when he puts tension into his collar via the leash, the harder he puts that tension on, the quicker it will come off mm-hmm. because we get to where we're going. And so people, you know, you got to go two blocks to where your dog's going to run around, right? So you put him on the leash and he starts dragging you to get mm-hmm. there and we allow that and then we get there. And so he's under pressure the whole way. That's getting him into the behavior. The behavior that he actually wants is running around. That's what's reinforcing him. So then we unclip him. Mm-hmm. And so- it when we walk home, he doesn't drag because he's like, I don't especially want to go home. Yeah. It's not that he's tired. It's because he's like, no, I don't want to get there any quicker. Yeah. Right. So I'm happy to just chill here. And so like these dogs, it's re- really simple. We show like, hey, the pressure in that circumstance is into the loose leash, right? So every you, you know change the relate the dog's relationship to pressure on the leash. At that point, we say, hey, if you put pressure on the on the leash, you, we stop, mm-hmm. right? And and that's total. That's nepopo. You stop. Right, and then when you relieve that pressure by staying within the the bubble of the loose leash, we start going again, and your positive reinforcement is getting towards where we want to go. Right, and like that's totally fits the force free people's frame model. Right, like and no positive reinforcement only dog trainer will argue with that. Mm-hmm. They say, women, but that's perfect, Nipopo. That yeah. is that fits our framework mm. perfectly. Is that we show, hey. Pressure comes on, find the behavior that turns off the pressure. Yeah. Now, the dog usually finds the behavior that turns off the pressure by getting where we're going. Mm-hmm. What we show him is like, no, just take a step back. Yeah. And we don't like, you know, you, you could speed things up and you could use different tools and whatever, but what usually works the best is just doing nothing. You mm-hmm. just literally wait. Yeah, and you go through. like, oh, he took a step back. And that can be hard to convince people to do because it, it's not fast. And you know yourself, mate. Like, you'd say to people like, oh, the dog pulls on the lead. And you go, okay, well, we have to address this as a training problem. And if you have somewhere to go- don't take the dog or put his harness on whatever and let him drag on the harness because mm-hmm. you'll undo this, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. when you're going to get to the park, if it takes you an hour to get to the park, that's an hour well spent because yeah. he's learning the whole way. Exactly. Right? And it'll get less and less each time. Oh, it'll consistent. just get super quick because he just wants to get, he wants the positive yeah. and he'll avoid the, yeah. the bear chasing him. And in this mm-hmm. case, the bear chasing him is him hitting the, the line, right? And so it has many, many applications and, you know, overwhelmingly, Nipopo is considered, you know, for sport and working dogs. And it's because we're after performance, but really what we're after is efficiency and training. And Mm -hmm. that's why people employ me is they're like, hey, you know, a lot of the people that employ me are very, very good dog trainers already. uh, But, you know, I want to take two weeks off this. This this training that I have that takes me six weeks and I'm really good at, I want to cut two weeks off that. It's like, sweet, because we can double the way we communicate to the dog. Now, whether you're communicating already via just a lot of compulsion and pressure or you're communicating you know, already via positive reinforcement, we can double your dog's understanding in an instant by using both at the same time, mm-hmm. all right? And so we can – and, you know, we had this other idea in dog training. I don't know if you guys have talked about it in your show, Lima, right? Like l- least, least invasive, invasive, minimally yeah. aversive. 
and like duration has to be a consideration in that, right? So if I can teach a dog, if I have to use a little bit of, you know, maybe a prong collar or I have to nag the dog on his flat collar or slip leash a few times, but I can teach the behavior in half the time Mm -hmm. that it would take to teach it using just purely positive or just pressure, to me, I have been- less invasive yeah. and less aversive mm-hmm. by getting it done quicker. Exactly. Right? For sure. So that's that's us. So I think like I say, the the working dog community really embrace Snipopo because they see the value in it. Mm-hmm. Um but honestly its highest and best purpose is in behavior modification. So with um with that like I'm gonna get a new puppy and I want to experiment more because it's hard mm. to change too often when you're actively teaching it multiple times a day. And I, what I have been, because I did um, one of your seminars mm-hmm. um, last year, and I find moments when I can use that that system that can work for us. So, for example, Michael Ellis talks about the name game. I don't know if he calls it the name game, but I call it that. Mm-hmm. So, basically, when I say the dog's name, I'm not saying, hey, stop that and hey, whatever. Basically, the name means I want your attention. Sure. So, if I say, what was the dog's name? Loki. Okay, Loki, the dog looks at me. Mm-hmm. Then I say down sit or come. Mm-hmm. Now, that dog's eight-month-old husky is fully excited and enthusiastic and is a little bit pushy and a bit of an asshole from time to time. Not aggressive, though, just, you know, husky. And what we – in this particular situation, I'll try to isolate when can I give somebody something because I need them to do things when I leave. And if I'm too complicated, then they're going to be like, I don't know what the hell this guy just said yeah, to yeah. me. So using the name game, basically, the dog's looking in a direction, usually at another dog, or if the dog – um, if we're at home, I'll just chuck food out on the floor in front of him. So he's staring at the food. I apply some pressure, say his name. The moment he looks at me, I relieve the, I relieve the pressure at the same time I give the marker and then he comes to me to get his food. Yeah, yeah perfect. And in that video, I showed you that the dog was on a prong collar because he just wants to like jump on every single dog. And she was like eight meters from him. She said, Loki, a bit of pressure. The dog looked. And then the moment the dog looked, instead of, releasing and rewarding she released and then gave the command mm-hmm. he then came and then he she rewarded and the mm-hmm. dog wanted the food so then he goes well the pressure wasn't there because usually the pressure is holding back so he does backflips until he gets to a dog eventually because mm-hmm. she's small he's big yeah um where now we reverse that yeah and um and it's been working i've been refining it trying to get it better and also how do you explain like just the name game? It looks super simple, bit of that. Yeah. But explaining it and explaining why, and we're trying to develop some drive, but also um, clarity and to be able to be clear with our dog. But there's just so much to it that yeah. it, it can get complex. But it's been working, which is awesome. And so thank you for exposing Pleasure. that to me. Pleasure. Um. But then, but then always after every seminar, especially when I left you, I was so head fucked. I'm like. Oh my god! I have to change everything now. <laughs> and um, and we ha- I have different uh, like if people are going to go out and watch your videos, um, or watch you train, like I would use a marker differently than you. And we had this mm-hmm. conversation. I'm still, I'm still caught up on it. Mm-hmm. But I think this is my philosophy, and you can tell me if I'm right. Is that would you say typically you're trying to make dogs powerful and a lot more drive because for the job that you're wanting them to do with the sports is that you want that where with everyday dog owners, we want to kind of lower their drive so we can make them more manageable. Let's just say, I know we can dig deep on this and talk hours on it, uh-huh. but let's just say my marker when I say yes is stay in position, I'm going to come and pay you. And I know your thoughts on that because mm-hmm. I've watched a lot of your stuff uh-huh. and I'm like, fuck, I don't want to change it and then confuse it. And I don't know if I'm willing to change it just yet. And then it backfiring. Mm-hmm. The dog's on a, on his place, on his bed. The person walks in I don't want to say yes and then him come off the bed to come for it. I mm. want to say yes and come to you because I want to kind of keep him a little bit more chilled out. Yeah. 
where there's sometimes, well, with the ball, for example, is always a release. Well, how do you get a ball anyway without yeah. releasing position? But when we're playing with the ball, it is a high drive activity mm-hmm. rather than eating food should be a little bit less. Um, from that limited thing that I just said, what do you reckon of that if someone was listening? Yeah, so uh, like your name game thing is perfect. Like that totally, that fits the system perfectly. You for no reason apply a pressure to the dog, right? And people can get kind of carried away in that and say, for no reason you're hurting the dog. It's like, no, I'm not hurting the dog. I'm just a, a, a tactile feedback, right? His collar's tight. It's something you can feel. It's not actually what's changing the behavior. Mm-hmm. It, it, later it could. But right now, it's just something the dog can feel. A signal. A signal, yeah. right? And then he's aware of it. Then you call him and you wait until he eventually looks. And then the moment he does look, you relieve that pressure. That's his first reinforcer, right? And at, in that learning phase, like right there and then, he doesn't care that that pressure came off because he never cared that it was on. But what he did learn was that by looking at you, it turned off, mm-hmm. right? And he didn't care that it came off. He didn't care that it came on. He didn't care that it came off. But he learned that it happened. And then later when he really – and then he gets his extra reinforcer, right? Like he gives him the positive reinforcement. So he's going both ways. But he learns the relationship between the pressure of the collar and he knows exactly how to turn it off, right? Because he doesn't care whether he has it on or off, but he knows how. Later, when he really is motivated by something else and it's dangerous and you have to stop him right away, he's going to drag you into traffic or whatever, and he slams into that line and he does concern him because he's hit it himself at MAC-10 or whatever, he knows how to turn it off. And that's where you get like confused and stressed dogs is when they're under pressure and it's a high amount of pressure and they don't know the path to turning it off, mm-hmm. right? But because he learned that at a really low level where he didn't care whether it was on or off, when it gets to a really high level, he goes, I know exactly how to stop this. I know the exact behavior that will bring this on. Mm-hmm. So you never stress the dog out. The dog learns super fast. And when that high level, high stress situation comes and he must comply in order, you know, for safety, then he knows exactly what to do with it. Yeah. it it's interesting, you know, like I teach a lot of electronic collar stuff, especially overseas. One of the experiments I love doing is I I say, hey, I need someone who can get to a really high level, right? So I get a person in the crowd and I – uh, it's to show that what happens in the differences in levels and the way that electric colic colon work is, you know, it stimulates electronic signal between the two contact points and that stimulates muscle. And so what ends up happening is their fingers, their hand, their fist will close, right? And so I usually, I put it on people and I strap it tight to their arm. Right. And I say to people, you can tell me to stop whenever you want. Right. And trust me, I promise you, I will stop. Right. But I'm going to stim when I start a level, I'm going to stim it for three seconds and it's on for three seconds for that level. And I say, is it okay if I use level one? And they go, yes. And I hold it and they can't feel it. Right. Most people get to about level seven or eight. And I say, is it okay if I do level eight? And they go, yeah. And I hold level eight for three seconds and I watch their hand like crunch up in a ball. And I say, is it okay if I do level nine? And they go like, no. Mm -hmm. So then later that day, I get them up again or a different person or whatever, but I just get them to hold the collar to their arm and I don't do it up. And I do the exact same experiment. And most people make it all the way to the highest level of the collar. Mm-hmm. And the Which reason is, what, is 10 or- uh, 18, 18, right? The reason is because they know they can stop it yes. at any by, instant, mm, right? Off, yeah. By just taking it off. When it's mm-hmm. strapped to them, they and I tell them, nothing you do. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care what you do. I'm holding it on for three seconds, mm-hmm. right? They very quickly start to panic at a like what I would consider a medium level for them, mm-hmm. right? Because they know- 
that nothing you can do will stop this. There is no way out of this until the time runs out, mm-hmm. right? But when they know in themselves, oh, I can just take this off, mm-hmm. right? Like that's you're, neat, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're going to keep this on for three seconds, but I at the half second mark, if I don't like it, I can just take this off my arm, mm. right? Most people make it all the way to the top because you know it, it. It's more exhilarating. It is painful, of course, but most people like they make mm-hmm. it. So the point is we want to give the dog the ability to take it off. Now, they don't like – and whatever the pressure is, whether it's electrics or it's a slip lead, a prong cold, whatever, right? Eye contact can be pressure to a dog. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what pressure we're talking about. But when he doesn't care about it, we teach him the behaviors that will turn it off. Yes. Right? So that when he does care about it, he's like, oh, I know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? I'll turn that off. Yeah. Right? And that's where a lot of people sort of go wrong in their learning phase. Mm-hmm. So, in their learning phase, the dog cares about it a lot. The dog's like, ah, fuck, right? And he's <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. And they shut the dog down. Now, no matter, like, again, uh, no matter the type of pressure you're using, whether it's prong collar, electric collar, slip lead, like I say, in the bite sports with young dogs, eye contact is the pressure, mm-hmm. right? Like, I stare at the dog. Um, no matter what it is, what I want to do in that learning phase is hand control of it to the dog mm-hmm. and say like, hey. You're in know, charge. Yeah. yeah. And, and you don't care about this, right? You don't care about it. And that's what you're talking about there. Like when you got that dog under pressure and he's more, he's looking at whatever it is, you know, he's more excited to get to the person or whatever. He's under an amount of pressure he doesn't give a shit about. And this is the sort of pressure when, if your dog's dragging you down the street, that's the pressure I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right? Like he's doing it to himself. Exactly. And yep. you show him like, actually the way you turn that off is by doing this yeah. X behavior. And I'm going to teach you that X behavior and make, I'm going to motivate you to do that using nothing but positive mm-hmm. reinforcement. But in that learning phase, you're going to make an association to it, to mm-hmm. the pressure as being able to be turned off. And the dog will never stress. I've never, like, when well, we go people through that- fuck up, sorry, um, before I forget, is that people go, like, let's just say where we say the dog sit, we apply some pressure, the dog sits. Mm-hmm. But where people always fuck up, especially just everyday dog owner, would put the pressure, the dog then resists a bit. So they go harder, the dog resists more. And then they then they start to put so much pressure on the dog that I was like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And that's where everyone screws up when it comes to <laughs> negative reinforcement. It should be yeah. treated like the seatbelt in the car. Yeah. It will just ding, ding, ding until you get sick of the dinging. It doesn't go dinging and then vibrating. At a fixed and, level, yeah. yeah. Yeah, throwing flames at you, you know. So yeah, totally. I've watched you teach it. You'll say, like, don't start at a one. Give them a four or a five. Oh, so more for a correction. Yeah. So if I'm going to give a physical pop on the lead, I'll give it just a little bit more so then because the point of a punishment is to mm. stop it yeah. rather than desensitizing to it. But when we're using the pressure on the collar, for example, even with that dog that really wanted to get to spades, just that little bit of pressure alone, which we would have put 10 times more three weeks ago, now is like, is that? Yeah, so the pressure becomes a signal. Exactly. Bit, right? And so this is what upsets some people as well as they say, hey – like you say, no, it's not aversive to him at all, right? It's a signal. And they say, well, if it if he wants to avoid it, it must be aversive. And you say, no, because we show him that in avoiding it, he gets his positive. Mm-hmm. So then when he feels it, he goes, the quicker I turn that yes. off, the quicker I get my positive. Mm-hmm. And people will say, well, he's faster when he's got it on. He must therefore hate it and mm. be trying to turn it off. And you go, no, I've just trained him yeah. that the quicker he turns it off, the mm. bigger paycheck he gets. Yeah. Right? And so he ends up loving it. Right, it's just a tactile. Signal. How much discipline would that require to get to those levels of it? For you know, it depends. Like it depends on the person and how well they can understand it. Yeah. Because the 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 issue is that in the the available education that people can get on this kind of thing, it's counterintuitive. Now, mm-hmm. it's totally intuitive when and to the dog who you know, the people. One one thing that I sort of I harass people about, and I'm really I'm very firm on my clients with this, right? 
I, you know, I might have someone come to me that says, Hey, I want to compete in, uh, ANKC obedience. And I go, okay, like, tell me exactly where the points are in the healing, right? Cause I know where they are. I've read them and I've gone to the trial. I've read the, the rules and I've gone to trials. I've never competed in ANKC cause my dog's technically a mongrel, right? I can't. <laughs> um, but like, I know where the points are. You tell me. And they go, oh, well, like, uh. and I go, okay, well, then you tell me what you want your healing to look like. Like, tell me exactly what you want it to look like. And it's like, oh, you know, the dog kind of at my side. And they go, hang on, stop. They just want it to look, quote, unquote, good. Yeah, right? but yeah. so say we, you know, have this language that we can talk to each other. Mm-hmm. And you've got literally, you know, thousands, maybe a million words at your disposal you can use to explain to me the picture of what you want. Yes. If you can't explain that to me using language, you have no chance of explaining mm-hmm. that to your dog playing charades, mm-hmm. right? Which is how we're going to communicate to the dog. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's really important yeah. is like setting solid criteria. Mm-hmm. And once people understand a solid criteria of what they exactly what it is they want from the behavior, it becomes way more intuitive to train that behavior. Mm-hmm. It's when you're messy in what you think the finished product is going to be that you will be messy in the path to that finished product. So for me, like, uh, you know, really strictly identifying the criteria and knowing, you know, exactly when am I going to be happy with this, right? Because there has to be a rep that I was not happy with and then the next one I am happy with, right? Mm. That day has to come. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. that day has to come. And if you can't clearly define that to yourself, there's no way you can clearly define yeah. that to your dog and the, your efforts to communicate it to your dog will be messy because you will not be consistent in what yeah. you are trying to communicate. And and what, which direction are you aiming at, you know, so like beginning with the end in mind yeah, sort of thing. Totally. Well, yesterday I was messing around with Leonardo, my son, and um, he's a baby, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to say, hey, the the star has to go into the red star hole, you know, the peg mm-hmm. in the hole. So what I did was I'm just – just messing around. I'm not trying to train him, but it would be nice if he knew things. So I, I put the, the peg You're halfway in. Training, bro. There's, no, there's right. no turning that off. <laughs> well, I put it halfway in and then I held it there and then he just pushed it. And I'm like, wow, yay. And then he wanted to do it again. Yeah. So then I thought, even though I really want him to put the pigs, I'm not going to put the pressure on him, but I thought, why not just make the game? And then he loves it when we clap and make a big fun time. He, yeah. he enjoys it. So I started there because maybe weeks down the track, when he learns how to pick things up. So he knows how to pick them up, but he also knows now how to push things. But I don't know if he knows how to grab it and then find it and push it in. Mm-hmm. We're going to work on that. That's part of his development. Yeah. But thinking doing that at the end is good to begin with, even though, and that's like, you know, back training of a command. Yeah, yeah totally. Because you want to know where to finish. So then at least then the dog, when he gets confused, he goes, well, I know that is a good thing. Yeah. And that's also good to, like, that's why we would teach a look command. Yeah. You teach a dog to look. So then when he's looking at the thing and barking at it, if you're looking at me, you're less reactive to bark at yeah. the thing. And that look command or something similar for a pet dog, even if it's a, you know, a retreat to a heel or a mm-hmm. middle position or something like that, installing what uh, my mentor Bart would say is like a mother language behavior mm-hmm. can be the, you know, that's night and day to a dog where you show a dog, hey, if you're confused and you don't know what to do, do this because mm-hmm. it's probably correct. Yeah. Right? That for a pet dog, and, you know, that's a recall for a pet dog, yep. right? For my working dog, it's bite something. Mm-hmm. They're like, hey, bro, you don't know what to do, destroy something mm-hmm. because that probably is the will, thing. What is what I need because if yeah. you get. Because you're in bite sports. Yeah. Yeah. If you find yourself overwhelmed and confused, it's probably because, like, like the puzzle of that the the bad guy has you know created in hiding is so hard for you, or he's mm. pretending not to. You know, there's 
chances are you can fix your problems by biting your way out, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's the nature of it does. But in a pet dog, I would say, you know, it's a recall. When mm-hmm. you're confused, get back to me. I will yeah. help you, right? Mm-hmm. And so creating that as a mother language and having that as the first use of pressure. I, I often tell people, especially dog trainers that are coming into this like full spectrum of motivation, this push and pull motivation. I usually tell them, be very careful the first time you teach anything to your dog doing this way, because you will never have been so clear to your dog in his entire life. Mm-hmm. He will never understand anything as well as he understands this. Mm-hmm. So, be careful because this is what he's going to offer you when he's yeah. confused because mm-hmm. nothing in his life has ever been this clear. Yeah, and well. so especially when people come to me and they're like, oh, you got this dog, you know, he's two years old, you know, mostly positive dog training. You know, we give the odd correction every now and again, whatever. I want to start layering in the pressure and go, Nipo, po. I go, okay, cool. But like, what do you do with this dog? Right? Mm. Like when he's confused and he doesn't know what to do, what do you want him to do? Mm-hmm. Or like when he hits the end of the leash, what do you want him to do there? Because like my own dog, he doesn't loose leash walk, right? Like he, 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 he he's like flat collar to him is the pull collar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when he hits the end of that line, he pulls as hard as he possibly can. Now that's a total opposite of what other people would want, right? But you got to show like, hey, what do you want from that? Because that's a very important signal your dog is going to receive every day, mm-hmm. right? How do you want him to feel about that? Do you want him to be like, fuck yeah, I hit the end of the line. That means you're going to pay me and turn around and, and, and look and stare at you and look longingly into your eyes as you walk down the street? Well, that sounds handy, right? Mm-hmm. Like that sounds like a, a pretty helpful behavior that the average pet dog owner would love to have so let's install that mm-hmm. right? whereas my own dog like when he hits the end of the line he's like i'm gonna drag you off your feet motherfucker yeah. and i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna get where <laughs> and, we're going and what's out there for yeah. me to get yeah whatever yeah and and that's a that's a cue to him like mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a really important a tactile signal, signal yeah. that he he receives and like that collar only goes on in order to make that happen Right. The problem with all this is and when people try to wing it and they fuck it up and they make like self like learn helplessness and things yeah. like that. Would well, you, say? you know what you were talking about before, I think once you start you know positive reinforcement is great. It's the way to train a dog. And if you only use it, your all your lack is reliability. Mm-hmm. Your dog will do what you want sometimes. And and like, you know, if you're fantastic at it and you control the environment, you control everything, you'll pull it off and you'll have an amazing trained dog. I won't argue that. But if you're not so good at it, the risk and the fallout is that the dog just doesn't do what you want. And now mm-hmm. if the dog's dangerous, that could be a big problem. Mm-hmm. But if you're just like, you know, I want my dog to um, do competitive obedience and I don't mind if we don't win, I'm just in it for the fun, no problem, right? And if you go out there and the dog sees someone in the crowd that he likes and says, fuck all this and I want to go <laughs> hang out with them, no problem. That's mm-hmm. that's up to you. No worries, right? The issue with people who are trained with negative reinforcement is like you can really make a fucking – people have it in their mind like with negative reinforcement, you can shut the dog down, mm-hmm. right? And for sure, that's tr- true. That is possible. You can really make a flat, shitty-looking dog – that's very compliant, does everything that he's told to do, hates his life, and just, you know, head down, tail down, does everything you ask. But you can also make a fucking dangerously obsessed dog using negative reinforcement, mm. right? If you show the dog, like, the only way out is this one behavior, and that, unfortunately, is what a lot of people do by accident, mm-hmm. right? And what's important about learning, uh, you know, the learning phase when we talk about negative reinforcement, that dog you're talking about is the learning moment happens when the pressure comes off. Now, whether- in that learning phase I was saying where he doesn't care about the pressure, right? Mm. Like he could give a shit whether it's on for the rest of his life. So that doesn't mean anything to him that it's on. What means, what's important to him is that it went off. And yes. that's where he goes like- That's the learning. That's the learning moment. Mm-hmm. Now, what's dangerous about negative reinforcement is imagine 
you accidentally put too much, right? Say you're using a slip leash and everybody's done this at some point, especially in kennels, right? Like you're trying, the dog wants to go one way. You're going, no, nah, man, we're going this way. You you pull the dog and then the leash goes tight around his neck and he goes, fuck, you're trying to kill me, right? Mm. And he immediately starts to fight. And being a like he's in a fight or flight mode, he, he can't run away because you're physically stopping that. The dog goes, this, you're trying to kill me via this leash. That's the, what the thought process mm. of the dog. And what do you think? You think, shit, like, I've I've made a huge mistake and you immediately take the pressure off. Mm. Well, what does the dog learn? In his learning phase, he learns when that pressure comes on, aggression turns it off, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And now you got a dog who that's like the trigger gets lighter and lighter. Now our dog who was taught when the pressure when the pressure comes on, you turn it off by turning what we the dog we want, we show him when the pressure goes on, you turn it off by turning to me and I give you yummy treats. That's mm-hmm. the picture we want. But what some people teach quite by accident is when that pressure goes on, you, me and you are fighting, mm-hmm. right? And it's not until you show me enough aggression that the fight will stop, yeah. right? Because people go, fucking they, like, it well, gets Would higher. you agree that, like, if someone was just watching a Caesar Milan video and go, oh, this is how you stop him from resource guarding, alpha roll him, yeah. hold him down well, until totally, he stops. Right? Totally. But you can't hold him there because he's eating your hand apart yeah. and you're going, I have to let go. Yeah. So you let go and the dog's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Well, fuck you. I'm going to bite you now every time you come close to the resource. Yeah. And that's where it could backfire, right? Exactly. So the dog we want, you know, takes off down the street, hits his collar, goes, oh, that's my signal to turn around and get food, right? The dog that people could accidentally train, and not because they understand what they're doing, but it's just by accident, is a dog that hits the end of the collar and goes, oh, that's my signal to turn around and fucking kill you, Mm. right? And it's not that you have an aggressive dog. That's the tactile signal that we've taught Mm. the dog. This is one of the worst things you see. Like, this is not uncommon in, um, you know, certain police dog circles. They say, you know, because- in a lot of the really powerful breeds, it's possible to have a handler-aggressive bloodline. Those exist, right? Where dogs are like, you know, I'm my own man. You get in my way, I'll fucking kill you, right? I mean, like, is that I'm, a redirected aggression thing or something else? It, it's usually a it, – it, it is possible to be a genetic trait, right? Mm-hmm. It is possible to be a genetic trait. And that's what it is, is that it's the dog is like such a powerful entity that he goes, you know what, man? Like, you, you – we're not, you're not my handler. Mm-hmm. You are the person who accompanies me when mm-hmm. I go fuck shit up, right? Mm-hmm. And handled correctly, that's a great dog, right? Mm-hmm. But you need to be aware of that. But they're rare, man. They're super rare. And a lot of people say, oh, I got this handler aggressive dog, it's genetic trait. And it's like, no, actually, man, you've taught it. You've set it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the worst thing is, like, I had, I've had some people get really upset when I explain to them, like, I go, let me guess, this is what happened. I explain almost verbatim the penny like, drops the, the process they've gone through and they go oh i've trained that and i go okay but now let me you know make it worse for you mm-hmm. do you live with the dog like outside of that one scenario where you say he's handler aggressive do you live with him yep he's you know he's on the bed he's all of this like we have this great relationship and i go okay you now have to understand that this dog who loves you and works with you thinks the only way he can protect himself is to bite you. Mm. Like that's the conflict state that mm-hmm. you've put your dog into. And that's the power of negative reinforcement, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that dog who has no intent to hurt you, right? Do- like loves you, works with you, but mm. if the conditions are right and the signals are correct, turns and tries to fucking kill you, mm. right? Because he thinks that's his only chance of survival yeah. is to turn on his master. Right. So that is one of the things like people say, ah, you know, too much negative reinforcement. It just flattens the dog out. It's like, well, actually, no, mm. <laughs> really fucking. Well, I, make I the heard dog very powerful. Yeah. I heard this and I don't even know if it's true. So I'm going to go with it. And the story is about learnt helplessness and how it could 
bleed over into other areas. And they had like a puppy, young puppy, and this is probably back in the day when there was no laws on animal studies. And they had two rooms. They both had electrified floors. Yeah. One that one of the dogs had option to turn it off by hitting a mat or some sort of button. Yeah. And the other one had no option of turning it off. So they lit up the the room. Both of them jumping around like freaking out, and then the one that had the option happened to hit that stimulus, and then it turned it off. Where the other one kept on bouncing around. So they did this few times, and of course the dog that knew how to turn it off would run straight away and turn it off. The other one just copped it. Yeah, sort and- of. That's so. What it was, it was a the dog's name was Julia. Right? Okay, so you know more about. It. Yeah, yeah. So it's this German <laughs> Shepherd, and it was uh, I think it was in the fifties. But so it was a study on, it was more about negative reinforcement and classical conditioning. So what they have is a a kennel floor. And again, like this is, I feel really passionately about these old behavioral science experiments because the data is solid because, you know, they literally tortured these animals, Mm -hmm. right? So it's not like survey data. It wasn't heaps of control. It was was raw, right? This is pre-ethical standards committees. And so I think it behoves us as trainers to really understand this shit because some dogs went through some horrific shit for us to get this knowledge. Mm. And to then, this is what upsets me when you see a lot of dog trainers who are like, ah, you know, I don't care about that. And it's like, man, some dogs went through some shit for us us to learn this. You should pay them the respect of fucking understanding it, right? Because we're like, well, first of all, we could never do that again, but nor should we. But we have the knowledge, so we respect the knowledge that we have. But so the experiment, you know, if if I'm correct, is that uh, they have these dogs. There's a kennel, and there's a like a a a slight floor, like maybe a Mm -hmm. you know six inches high. Sorry, a, a a gate that's like six inches high. So their floor gets electrified. You know, uh, by accident or on purpose, they eventually fall over the side and they realize this side's not electrified. So before too long, as soon as the floor gets electrified, they quickly jump to the other side. That's negative reinforcement. Super clear, right? Okay. So now we're going to link classical conditioning. There's a bell. It goes off. Ding. One second later, the floor gets electrified. The dog, the first time the bell means nothing to the dog, then the dog feels the floor that he knows shit. The only way to get out of that is to step over the fence. Okay. Very quickly, the dog hears the bell, jumps the fence. Mm-hmm. And so he never got stimmed because he understands, How to right? Like, yeah, well, he avoids Avoiding. So that's escape and avoidance training. First, he yeah. escapes that pressure, right? So, you know, now we can soften the language. He was electrified. He felt pressure, mm-hmm. right? He escaped the pressure first by accident, falling over the other side. Then knowing it would happen, he turned it off by doing it intentionally. And then later, he avoids the pressure because he knows that he bell knows predicts that the floor is about yeah. to be electrified and we jump it over. Now, they don't even have to plug the machine in anymore. All they need is the bell. The dog jumps over the other side, right? Mm-hmm. And the dog's mind, he avoided it, even though it was never coming. So then- that's, you know, well known. That's the, like a fusion of operant and classical conditioning. So then they think, okay, what if we front load the training of this dog to already understand that the bell means the floor will be electrified? So they get this one German ship and they put her in a different scenario where there is no other side, right? So they go bell, electrified floor. And she bounces around, but there's nowhere for her to go, right? There is no way that she can turn it off. Bell, electrified floor, bell, electrified floor. So they front load that knowledge and then they put her in the same experiment as the other dogs where she can just step over. Mm, But because she learned, her learning phase was not, the learning phase was not, there's a behavior that turns this off. Her learning phase was the stim leads to pressure and there's nothing you can do about it, right? mm -hmm. So she became what they then understood as learned helpless because she she never tried. Mm. So when they put her in that same experiment, they ring the bell and they turn on the electricity. 
not only did she never try and figure out a way out of it, they couldn't coax her out of it. She mm-hmm. ended up, It's horrific footage. She just curls up in a ball and just screams. Fuck. And they even in the experiment were trying to help her, like trying to lure her to the other but, side. But that's very much what you see in the pet dog, right? You walk down Absolutely, the street. You see this in the, people, man. This is well, the thing. Yeah. And so this is like, that's what learned helplessness is, is where there were enough repetitions of a circumstance looking a particular way from which there was no escape. Now, whether there really was no escape or it seemed like there was no escape to them, you know, either way, it doesn't matter. It's that their experience is the same. Yeah. Then when I'm in this situation again, this is where you see people who spiral out of control and you go around and you're like, hey, man, like you're spiraling out of control. Let me help you. And they, they won't take your help mm. because they are yeah, helpless spiral, in that man. moment, right? Yeah. They're like, no, this is how it's going to go because it's gone like this in the past. It can't go any other way. So is that So if I'm getting my memory right from like 10 years ago saying that these same dogs were then chucked in a pool a year later after the experiment, the one that learnt how to um, escape and avoid the pressure found a way out of the pool where the other one didn't even attempt and and sunk. I'm not sure about that. that? I don't know about that. I don't know about that section okay. of it. I, I just know that the idea is like, and it probably would be contextual. I'm not sure that that would carry over to a pool, but okay. to her, it was that sound on this type of floor leads to electricity. Okay, that's cool. There's nothing I can do to stop that. Mm-hmm. And it, in what's brutal about that, it it's you know it's really upsetting. And this is why I think we have to acknowledge it and know yes. what to do. Is that they couldn't even get her to change over, mm-hmm. right? Like they were trying, like it's so hard wired, right? It's just like there's and no you reckon it's because of the bell, yeah, because they front loaded the yeah. bell. Well, if so, the bell didn't happen in that experiment and the floor, which do you think that she would have tried? I don't know. It, like it, it would be a case of it, it probably would be the same because it meant that. No, so if there was no bell in the learning phase, she would then predict there's a way out. But in when she was in the experiment, she may never, still never have tried yeah, okay. because there was no- No previous- uh, Yeah, she learning. didn't ever have a way out. So yeah. she never, you know, with a, a significant enough learning phase where there was no way out, when there was a way out, she never looked for it. Mm. That is what, yeah, you're right, man. A lot of people do that to their pet dogs mm-hmm. by accident. Yeah. Or on purpose, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's what we totally want to avoid, except if we want to use it on purpose, right? So, <laughs> For sure. So, like, there's certain behaviors where I want my dog to be helpless. And it's not because he's going to be electrified, but it's because I don't want him trying to solve the puzzle. So, like, crate training is a perfect example of yes. this, right? Where I want my dog to understand, like, you're helpless in there. Just you, you, no amount of barking, Put crying, screaming. It. You cannot get yourself brought out of there, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that can be troubling as well, right? Like, that has its own issues. But this is sort of uh, – you would use learned helplessness on purpose to extinguish a behavior, right? Mm-hmm. To show the dog there's no hope, right? Mm-hmm. As dog trainers, I think really what we are is hope dealers. We deal mm-hmm. in, like, in for a behavior that we want. Like, as hope is dopamine, mm-hmm. right? And that's what makes a dog happy. That's mm-hmm. excitement. That's adrenaline. Well, it's not adrenaline, but it's it's power, yeah. right? And in a behavior that we want to see more of, we create hope, right? Mm-hmm. Mm, that could happen and that could go well for me. In a behavior we never want to see again, we create no hope, right? Mm-hmm. Like th- that will never go you want well it extinct. For you. Yeah, yeah, we'll make it go extinct. But as long as you've got your ethics in line. That's right. Like, and, mate, and this is the thing. So when people hear me talk about that, like learned helplessness, and they're like, that's fucking, you're a monster. It's mm. like, well, for starters, it was 50 years before I was born. So hang on. <laughs> but, but, I know it, so therefore I can apply it in the ways that are going to be helpful to me and my dog, mm-hmm. right? Like that is going to better both our lives so that my dog knows when he goes in the kennel, he's helpless. Mm-hmm. Can't get out, right? Like there's nothing you do will bring you out. You're not in control of your destiny in there. Just go to sleep. 
Just relax, mm-hmm. right? And that betters his life. He mm-hmm. then doesn't stress over like, what's the behavior? How can I get it? And out? that's beginning with the end in mind. You're putting him in the crate, not because you're having him there for 48 hours and you're feeding when you want to and all that sort of crazy shit. It's that you're going to be there for a few hours yeah. while I'm doing Travel something, around, traveling, we're asleep or whatever. Yeah. But when you learn how to get yourself out, then then you actually um, improve your stress levels yeah. in the long term. Well, and that's the issue as well, like say with crate training is people, um, you know, the dog, it, you know, this is more of a conversation of extinction rather than learned helplessness. But uh, if you show the dog crying, gets you brought out of the crate, right? Because your dog's capable of crying from a level zero, which is, you know, asleep, to a 10, which is, you know, like, you know, full-blown panic attack. And your dog goes in the crate and he gets to like a level three out of 10 and you go, oh, I can't handle it anymore, open it up. And the dog goes, okay, crying at a level three out of 10 is what gets me out, right? So then then when you eventually put the dog back in, he starts at level three. Yeah. And he goes like three, four, five, and you go, shit, I can't help it. And then before too long, and certainly I've had these clients, I'll bet you have as well, where you say, okay, you got to crate train the dog. And they go, I've done that. The dog like gets blood, diarrhea, and like foaming at the mouth at the side of the crate. And you go, well, that's because like you've incrementally Mm. increased, and the dog has learned through classical conditioning that an extreme stress and panic response keeps me out of there. And so he might have been faking it the first time. You never reach the top of the extinction burst. Yeah, that's it. You never like you yeah. reinforce by letting him out every time. At the, the extinction, extinction burst. Correct. Yeah. 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 And so you never went over the peak. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. the dog might have been acting initially in order to get out, right? Like I know this will get me brought out. But now there's a physiological, like a reflex response to the mm-hmm. idea of going in the Yeah, crate. like you smell the tequila and go, yeah, oh, no Exactly, way. right? Yeah. Now, now that stress is real, <laughs> yeah. right? So the dog really does have a fucking meltdown. Yeah. And it's because you incrementally built that mm-hmm. because you gave him hope. Yes. Right? You let him think there's a way out. So he kept trying harder and harder. And you and want that into a just in the things you want. Yeah, that's not right. Not the things you don't want. Yeah. And that's what, yeah. So like in the, you know, in the working dogs, we want a dog that's like, you know, there's a bad guy behind the door and the dog's like, I'll fucking smash this door down. Even though there's no way the dog is like, I can do it because I've yeah. shown him yeah. like, you know, I read the door to be just hard, a little bit hard the first time and then mm-hmm. a little bit harder, a little bit harder. And then when it gets to the point where it's really a locked door and there's no way the dog can get through that, he's like- no mm-hmm. door can hold me. Like yeah. I am this. I am a monster. That's I have right. hope that I will yes. get through this. And he persists at trying to open mm-hmm. the door. So we do that on purpose with behaviors we want, and we yes. have to get rid of it behaviors that we don't want. Yeah. It's a, it's a balancing act, man. And that's the totally. thing. Like in dog training, we have a lot of people that then say, you know, nah, it's this or it's. They're mm-hmm. like, I would never, I don't want to hear about that because I'm never going to use it. That's ideology like, though. Yeah, that's right. It's like, you are going to use it. You yeah. are. So it's best to understand it. And yeah. that's what I say, like with that push and pull of motivation, that knee popo stuff, everybody's doing this stuff. We just acknowledge it mm-hmm. and go, I'm going to do it on purpose. Yes. I'm going to do it with intention, right? Yeah. I'm going to do but this. That's the artist in us, right? That's the artist that all the, so. you know, that's your craft, you know? I think so, man. Luke had a question and I'm interested to hear the answer about the collars. Yeah, because I've, I've listened awesome. to obviously a lot of- your stuff now and, and spend some time with Panos. And I noticed that you talk a lot about the slip lead, mm. but Panos tends to use a lot of the martingale. So mm-hmm. is there, you know, like what's. Uh, I used to use martingales two. a lot when I was doing a lot of pet dog stuff. I did use a lot of martingales. Um, truth be told, the reason I went to slip leads was uh, I found it. It's no more effective. It's very similar to a martingale, right? Mm-hmm. Truth be told, it's very similar. Um, when you when attaching the martingale correctly, yeah, exactly sure. right. Uh, but it's an easier sell. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like slip leads are, are cheap, right? Yeah. You can get them. So what I used to do, and I, you know, I don't do too much like in home behavior stuff anymore. But what I always used to do was I would have a clicker, 
and a slip lead that was included in the cost of the console. And, you know, clickers are like a dollar and a slip leads are like a few dollars when you buy a hundred of them. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Like, you're getting it. And there's no, okay, here's the extra expense you have to do because a Martindale yeah. is like 20 or 30 bucks or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And and there's no like, okay, we'll use mine in the session and then you have to get one afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had in my pocket because it folds up in my pocket a slip lead and a clicker and we would use You've that already in paid the session. For it. Yeah. You would use that in the session. Then people go, okay, where do I get these? And I say, you have that one. Like, mm-hmm. that's yours. It's here. So if that is the right tool, and more often than not, truth be told, like a slip lead and a martingale are usually fairly interchangeable. There's, mm. there's some benefits to one over the other, of course, right? There's, there's sure. minor benefits, but I just found the slip lead an easier sell. One thing I noticed is that with the martingale, you have to adjust it a lot. Mm-hmm. Is that less true with the slip lead? Uh, not necessarily. Like, uh, I think- what, one thing I really like about Slip Lead is very directional pressure. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, when I'm using mechanical tools of pressure, it's because uh, I can influence the behavior that will relieve that pressure very easily with a, a directional Directionally, pull. yeah. Yeah. And so, a Slip Lead, you know, I can put it on left or right-handed, right? Like, so, if I want the dog on my left, that goes on a particular way. If I want it on my right, it goes on a particular way. I use a lot of slip leads in um, grip development and bite work where I actually teach the dog to pull into it, right? So, mm-hmm. like, to push further into the bite using mm-hmm. a slip lead. Um, but I don't think there's a big benefit over one or the other other than that, that it's just cheaper. But uh, that's all dog training, right? Like, there's a million ways to do any given thing. For yeah. Sure. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like I say, I used to use a lot of martingales. Um, and, it, like, a martingale is a good stepping stone, like, between the slip lead and the prong collar, sure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to kind of try and convince people, hey, like, you know, oh, we started on the slip lead. Now, if we're looking for more of a, a pop type correction, mm-hmm. let's go to the prong, the martingale. You know, and there were times when I would even knowing a martingale wasn't going to work, l- let people fuck around with it for a little while before we eventually go to the prong. I think mm. now I'm, I'm a little bit better. Only as a stepping stone. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm a little bit better at just sort of going like, hey, the prongs are too. And your audience as well. You know, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You know. And one thing I actually, um, I heard another trainer talking about always using a backup on a prong collar. Mm. I've, Use prong collars. I've never had one pop off. I'm sure people can put them on wrong and whatever. Would you say to an everyday client and people that are listening that have to use a prong collar, would you back it up with another collar? What, what are your thoughts it on depends. that? It depends. So I've done both. Um, for sure. So, you know, depends on the behavior. So in certain uh, – in the bite work, if you – I've. For me, the prong collar is a tool of finesse. I yeah. think that it's one of the most uh, misused tools that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like to use the really small prong collars because I think there's more pinch per inch, right? Yeah. Like that's a Michael Ellis saying. And the, the truth is like for me, I hold the leash that I'm using my prong collar in in like my thumb and forefinger mm-hmm. and I use like a piece of paracord as a leash, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because I want to- I want super fine – it's a detailed tool for me, right? Um, and as a result – there's no way I could actually hold my dog with that. Like if yeah, I, yeah. if, because I'm, I'm literally holding it for sure, thumb and forefinger on a tiny piece of string with a, you know, the micro prong collar that my dog has, he can, he has snapped mm-hmm. that, no problem. He'll for snap sure. that, no problem. So in that circumstance, the reason I would be using it is because I've put a lot of conflict into the training, right? Mm-hmm. So like I've got three decoys agitating me. I've got, you know, people literally trying to be bitten by my dog, heaps of conflict, and I'm trying to just, you know, modify his head position slightly. Yeah. Or even, you know, I might even be considering his eyes in his head, yeah. right? So like he can totally be faking, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm looking at you, but his eyes are wandering yeah. around and using yeah. the prong, I can be like, hey, For man, sure. bring it back in. 
So in that circumstance, for sure, I use a backup. Mm-hmm. But I think for the average person who's just, you know, walking a dog down the street and if they're using a medium prong, uh, I tend not to. I have in the past with certain dogs, I have in the past. And like I say, the way that I would manipulate a prong, if I'm using it really correctly or not correctly, but as I would like to use it, um, it means that I'm barely holding on to it. Mm-hmm. And if the dog is in the early phase of training and is likely to be a bolter, having a, a a backup on a harness or something mm-hmm. like that, that if we lose the dog, if we, you know, the client does more than they should or we turn a corner and there's the stimulus that mm-hmm. we weren't expecting and, and the dog just bolts, uh, the way that they're holding the leash for the prong collar might not be adequate to hold it and so they've got the backup of the okay. death harness or whatever. That's cool to know. So, yeah, I've done both. Cool. I don't really play it by you. Perfect. I don't have a rule on that. Bro, we've gone like almost an hour and 50 minutes. And we've <laughs> That's what happens, man, when you let me talk. going down. <laughs> well, we're yeah, having a good talk. time, but I'm like busting the door piss and we have to go home to babies and, and wives and life. So, um, man, it's been awesome to have you on, man. We've had a really good time. Um, Pleasure. Tell us a little bit about where we can find you and a little bit about the podcast as well. Uh, yeah, so me and Glenn's podcast is uh, The Canine Paradigm. Uh, we're on everything, uh, you know, all the podcast apps uh, and – yeah, what I say, we're 100 and something, 30 episodes in. Um, so you can check that out. We have a Patreon where we have a lot of like really detailed training mm. content. Highly recommended, by the yeah, way. Um, yeah, I've thanks, just man. joined it recently. Oh, really? And, um, you know, because I'm only about six, seven weeks into NDTF and it's like, it's so, so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. The thing with our Patreon is um, the stuff that I put into there is like really technical. If yeah. you, the truth be told, like a lot of the, the podcast you could listen to and and if you're just sort of inter- a little bit interested in dog sort of training. dipping your toes. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. But the, some of the stuff I go into in that Patreon is so fucking technical, right? <laughs> it's like, deep. Like I'll explore just how to name a behavior for an hour and a half. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. chill out. Um, it's you and the whiteboard. Yeah, that's it, right? It's, I get into my little zone by myself just talking. Once a microphone gets in front of me, I can't stop to figure it out. Um, but yeah, and me, uh, so my business uh, is operantcanine.com.au. And you can check that out. I do Skype sessions and stuff all over the world. That one can do that. And, you know, now that now the world's starting to get going again, seminars will be starting again. Awesome. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a few in Australia happening pretty soon, um, and who knows? Well, I'm actually I'm meant to be in the UK right now, but who hey. knows when that'll happen? <laughs> uh, but yeah, we back all over the world, so just check it out there. OperantCanine.com.au. Awesome, man! Thanks heaps. Thanks for having me. Thanks, fans. mate. Thanks for Are you going to do the wrap up and t- you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, rate, share, comment? <laughs> That's it. That's Appreciate it. it, man. Have a good day. A pleasure. Thanks, bro. Thank you for listening to another show of Life with Your Dog. Please like, rate and share if you're enjoying our podcast. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. For all dog training videos, tips and techniques, visit nooches Thank you and stay tuned for next time.